Welcome to the Travel Tales Podcast. The winners are the, the people with the most stories. One of the great things about traveling is the people that you meet. I've slept in bus stations, like yeah. I've slept on people's floors. And it's already on fire, and then there's just a gigantic, huge explosion, like out of a Hollywood movie. It's not right or wrong, it's just different. We hired like 10 Chinese prostitutes to come be our audience. We were kidnapped by nuns in Puerto Rico. <laughs> not a good idea to be high when you're packing. You forget a lot of stuff. I got swine flu. By the time you've lived through it, it's just a good story. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Travel Tales Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Siegel. Thanks for listening. My guest today is Andrew Gold. And before we get to Andrew, here's a few announcements. First and foremost, my website is TravelTalesPodcast.com. You can go there and see photos of our guests. So you can see links to their social media. You can see stories that I've written. You can see stories that some of the guests have written. You can see links to our social media, which is, of course, Travel Tales Podcast on Instagram, Travel Tales Pod on Twitter. We have a Facebook page. Follow us on all those platforms. I'd appreciate it. We have links to Apple Podcasts and Stitcher Radio. We're on Spotify. We're pretty much anywhere you get your podcasts. If you listen to us on any service, I ask you to subscribe. And at the very least, give us a good rating. Boosts our presence there, builds the audience, helps more people find the show. And if you can do that, I'd appreciate it. If you think you'd be right for the show or you know somebody who'd be great for the show, if you have any questions about travel, about me, or you just want to say nice things, you can write me at TravelTalesPodcast at gmail.com. That's TravelTalesPodcast at gmail.com. And hey, guess who has a plug? Me. That's right. I got something to plug this week. I was contacted by the good folks at the Wall Street Journal, you know, the famous Wall Street Journal, to write an article for their travel section. They wanted a little story about cruise ships, a little behind the scenes of what it's like to work on them. And I wrote a little article that comes out this weekend, January 30th. I think the online version came out yesterday, but look for it. And I'll put a link to it at TravelTalesPodcast.com as well. So that was cool. And I'd like to thank Deborah Dunn, the editor over there, who contacted me. So now I can say I've written for the Wall Street Journal. My mother, very impressed. All right. Andrew Gold's information was passed to me from Brian Souders, who was a guest a couple episodes ago. Andrew is a journalist and a TV presenter. He's English, but is now living in Berlin with his Argentinian girlfriend. He lived in Buenos Aires for about six years, which is a great way to acquire an Argentinian girlfriend. And now he's in Berlin with her. He's made a number of documentaries. One is aired on the BBC. It's about a priest in Buenos Aires who performs exorcisms. We talk about that a lot. He did a couple talk shows in Argentina, one on radio, one on TV, that didn't turn out so great, and we talk about that. We talk about a lot, and if you'll notice the length of this episode, we do talk a lot on this. And yes, this is uh, longer than most of my episodes, but hey, I found Andrew an interesting guy, and we had a lot to talk about. So look at me giving you extra free content. Naturally, this being 2021, Andrew has his own podcast. <laughs> do you have one? Well, what are you waiting for? Everybody's got one these days. It's called On the Edge with Andrew Gold. You can find it at andrewgoldpodcast.com. You can find him at Twitter and Instagram at andrewgold underscore OK. AndrewGold1 on YouTube. We have links to all this stuff at traveltalespodcast.com. We talk about languages a bit. He's on his fifth language that he's learning right now. He's learning German. And I'm still here trying to find the discipline to learn a second one. So that's humbling. We talk about Colombia a bit. He lived in Medellin, which was my... Last time out of the country, one year ago this month, I was in Medellin, Colombia, and he actually lived in Medellin for a year. So anyway, a guy that's been around a bit and has had a lot of interesting experiences. 
So I'm glad I got to meet him. I enjoyed my conversation with him, and I hope you will too. Please enjoy my chat with Andrew Gold. People ask you what you do. Would you say you're a journalist first or a TV presenter or what do you say? Hmm. Yeah, I say I would say journalist. It's funny. Um, the, the, the documentary work is so few and far between. It's so hard to get it done. It's like a documentary once every couple of years. They don't even pay me for it. You know, they, it's just the hardest career. Um, American budgets are much higher than British ones for whatever reason. And, and the British people, if you're at the bottom of the ladder, they will try and just, you know, get it for free. So I made mini documentaries for HBO that were like five minutes long. They were initially, they were actually for Fusion, uh, Univision Fusion uh, TV channel in the States. That was the first stuff I did like years ago. Um, I'm skipping ahead a bit of what we'll talk about, I imagine. Yeah. But just to sh- show they they paid, you know, for five minute documentaries or whatever, they paid us like $13,000 or $15,000, something like that each one. And the BBC, I made this hour long exorcism film that won awards and did all this stuff and blah, blah, blah. I didn't get a penny from that. I didn't see one cent from that. Uh, I've, t- I've translated to cent, but yeah, from that. The BBC didn't pay mm. you at all for an hour long documentary. So what they did was like, so I made it basically totally myself with, with my friend, David Hayes, who's a director. Um, and I said, come out to Argentina, let's make this film because I tried it with the BBC already and a few different channels and British channels are interested in British ideas, basically, especially if it's, if it was going to have Spanish in it, which it did, they, they were just not interested. So I said, look, David, you know, we've, this is a story. This guy's a nutcase, this exorcist. We've got to film him. So we went and did it. And we went and we, I learned to edit then. And that was my first real time making a, a, a real sort of hour long documentary, kind, you know. Um, it took us a couple of years with the BBC to sell it. And eventually we got it to this production company, a really small one called Villager Films. And they were brilliant and they were really helpful. And they, they sort of cleaned it up a bit, our edit. They cleaned up our edit and made it look a lot nicer, the documentary. Um, and we got it to the BBC. And the BBC were very much like, yeah, I mean, we'll take it. You know, they were like that. And we we were sort of pushing a bit. And if we pushed, they were like, well, we don't have to take it then. And we were like, no, 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 no. Because it was such a big deal for us. It was a huge thing for us. Um, and it was, yeah, the whole thing was nuts. And so they also said, so they, they basically, gave, they gave us 5,000 pounds, like $8,000 or something. But they needed a lot of changes to be made. And we had to get lots of checks by lawyers and stuff because the BBC are really, really pernickety with that stuff. So we had to make sure we weren't defaming the exorcist and like anything like that and that stuff cost more than the money they paid us so none of us got paid for it um so that's that's so so long story short i find it almost a little bit disingenuous when people ask me what i do for a living to say documentary maker because i make my money from boring stuff online like copywriting and stuff like that and starting to make money from the podcast and fingers crossed that will continue but yeah, I don't know what I say, but yeah, journalists. So yeah, journalists. Every day I think about making a documentary. I hear stories about like that. <laughs> you know, just like uh, there's so much work, and you do it for the love, and and um, and you don't make any money off them. I mean, I don't know who makes I mean, money yeah. off documentaries. It's it's you so hard. Do. I mean, you can. I mean, like I say, the American. I guess if you're Michael Moore, work. maybe you can do it. Michael Moore makes he makes a lot or of money. Or Ken Burns or somebody like that. His, his documentaries are mad, Michael Moore, because it's just he just says whatever he's thinking and does whatever yeah. he wants, and it's just. But it, yeah, you know. it's, it seems to be more about him than than the subject quite often. But yeah. Um, yeah. so, well, let's get, start with you. I mean, you're obviously uh, an Englishman, 
let's yeah. just say. Okay, what part of England are you from? <laughs> uh, London. I was born in Watford, which is the northwest oh, yeah. suburbs. You know it? Yeah. Well, I'm an English football fan too, so I knew it. I knew I've it. I've been to. I've been, yeah, Watford. I knew Watford. I knew as the famous for uh, Elton John owned the team for a little while. That's right. That well, he didn't play. Of, no, no, <laughs> that, I know he owned it for a part owner yeah. or whatever. But I know he's a big fan and yeah, good yeah. there for the last few years. And then now they're becoming less good. But uh, yeah. So when did the travel bug hit you, and when did you first start going international? Hmm. Well, I I never really considered it when I was younger, and. I was at university in Leeds, in the north of England. Uh, you'll know Leeds, the football team, of course. Sure, well. Leeds. And uh, yeah. Live at Leeds by The Who was the first uh, time oh. I heard, saw the the name Leeds, their famous live okay. album. That's, yeah, I'm dating myself a little bit. <laughs> I'm dating myself <laughs> a little bit. But that's right there in the, in the heart of the country. That's a big, big university town, right? It is, it is, yeah. So that was a lot of fun. Uh, and that was great. You know, I was 18. It was the first time moving away from my family. Some people go to the London universities. There's quite a few there. And some of them are quite prestigious as well. Not quite Oxford and Cambridge, but maybe the next sort of tier. And I never understood it because for me, it was like, I got to get away from my parents as soon as possible. <laughs> and university in England is not quite the same price as like in the States and you get student loans. So I owe the I owe the country like, you know, $40,000 or something. I just, you know, while, while abroad, I'm just not, you know, when I go back to the UK, I'll have to start paying it back properly. But, I, you know, it's, it's worth it because I got away from my parents for a few years. That was great in Leeds. But what happened was I, I studied English literature. So I, I loved reading and all that stuff. And then it was like the second year of university. I just happened to be checking my emails on, on you know, my university portal or whatever. And I got an email through just saying, hey, does anybody want to go and live in France for the year? Because some people in the French department like the, who are studying French have pulled out uh, and there are some spaces if somebody in the English department wants to go. And they were doing it on a first come first serve basis because if they had done it in terms of like, you know, the, the cleverest people go first or whatever, I wouldn't have been going. Um, <laughs> so I just happened to be reading my emails when that came through. So I just instantly i'd never thought about it i never never crossed my mind i wanted to live abroad and i emailed back and i looked and they had the option of going to lille or to montpellier and i looked on the map because i don't even know at this point i was just so closed-minded or whatever so i was like okay lille's there montpellier oh it's on the south coast oh this this is nice beautiful mediterranean beaches and stuff so i just replied like thinking this would never happen and then i got a reply back like okay well you're going to live there next year so it just blew my mind. So that at that point, like most Americans and British people and Australians and whatever, I thought I would never, ever be able to learn a language. So that's what it was. I started to fall in love with learning the French language. I was amazed that I had the capability to do it because I grew up imagining it was impossible. And that led me to want to live in more places and sort of soak up all these languages. How many languages are you up to now? Five, you said? Yeah, five, but I include English, so it's cheating a bit. Yeah, okay. Mm. <laughs> so Spanish, French, uh, yeah. what are the others? German, German now? Portuguese. Portuguese, okay. Every time I'm mm. in Portugal, I know a bit of Spanish, but Portuguese is just close enough to Spanish to screw me up. Yeah, know, well, it confuses me it. more. <laughs> you can probably read it fine, but then when they speak, it's yeah, it's like Russian. It's especially in Brazil, it's this real like, eu posso te falar em português, se você quiser. It's real... Yeah, Slavic thing. Although I've forgotten that now. If a Portuguese guy came in and started talking to me, I'd struggle. I'd need a few weeks to build it up again. First time I went to Brazil, they uh, I brought a Portuguese phrase book 
with me, a little handheld phrase book. Yeah. But I didn't know it was Portugal Portuguese and not Brazilian Portuguese. Uh, so I would say these words and they just look at me just like, yeah, we don't we don't say that here. <laughs> those, those those ones always seem to be the words that actually mean to fuck or something like that by accident. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like I, I think uh, coger in, in Spanish in Spain, is, it means to fuck, but in, uh, or is it the other way around? To take one of them in either, I can't remember now, in Argentina or Mexico and then Spain, one of them is to take the bus, coger el bus. And the other is to have sex with the bus. So <laughs> yes. they always do that to slip you up. There's loads of language things like that that drive me crazy. There's there's also ones that are similar. They sound really similar when they're really different. So there's like in French uh, to say um, <clears throat> above is dessus, below is dessous, right? So that's that's nuts. And that's really important because I used to think like, what if I was in an emergency and they were like, quickly, above you. And I'm hearing like, dessous or dessous. Which one was that? I don't, yeah. they always do that. Should I get under the bus or <laughs> on top of the bus? Well, I found exactly. of all the Spanish accents, you know, just the last, it's been a year this week of uh, mm. my last trip and it was in uh, Medellin, Colombia. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'd never been to Colombia. And the Colombian accent I found very easy, but the most difficult accent of all the Spanish-speaking places I've ever been, mm. where where you lived was in Buenos Aires, mm. which sounded bizarre to me. I mean, I, most people say mm. I sound Mexican when I speak Spanish, mm. which makes sense for, you know, that's m- most of the Spanish I've heard my whole life. But yeah, going down, I did better in Spain than I did in Buenos yeah. Aires. It sounded like Italian to the ear. It sounded, the, yeah. the pronunciations were really hard. That was, did you find it as well? I mean, it, I'm, yeah. most most British people I find, they speak like Spaniards, you know, right. you know, yeah, the uh, Barcelona yeah, so, and that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so, so the interest, yeah, I guess the difference between Americans and the British is like our second language is always going to be French. Whereas you guys, it tends to be Spanish. Oh, yeah. So like we all did French lessons from the age of 10 or whatever. Uh, and you guys did your Spanish lessons and then neither of us get to actually use it. Yeah. it because, we forget it after the test. Yeah. It's impossible. It is impossible. You always hear people, you know, what I found across the board is that any country in the world, you go there and they say, oh God, in our, in our country, they teach languages terribly at school. And I think it's just a case of it's impossible. You're not motivated when you're 10, 11, 15 years old. You're just not. And you need to be really motivated to learn a language. You've got to be obsessed. What kid at 15? I wasn't. I was terrible at French and Spanish at school. So uh, the Argentine, I actually went to Medellin to begin with. So I was there for a year and it was because I, I, yeah, I had, I, after, after France, so I studied in Montpellier, I went back and did a year again in Leeds to finish my university. And then uh, there was another sort of program. So the first one was called Erasmus. That's what sent, they send people out to to study uh, in, in Europe. It's free and they give you like money to go and do it. So the UK is now leaving that of course, which I think is one of the worst parts of Brexit. It's horrible. Some people have said there will be other links like that set up with with other countries, which is always the answer to you know anything you say about Brexit. They say yes, but there will be other ones with yeah. Well, maybe we don't. Okay, if that happens, then fine. Um, but yeah, so that was that was Erasmus, and then there was a program called the Leonardo da Vinci program, which uh, was a similar idea, except they find you a work placement. So after Leeds, I did that, and they sent me to Bordeaux this time. So I went to Bordeaux and I worked at some stupid company or something. I worked in book publishing for a bit. Went back and then went back to London, worked as a journalist for a while in England. I'm skipping ahead of this bit because it's not the travel bit. But I worked at the Sun. The Sun. Oh, you know what? It's actually interesting because I worked at the Sun newspaper, which is a horrible tabloid newspaper. Do you know that? Oh, yeah. I know yeah. the Sun. <laughs> it was just Do they have the page six girls? Or is that them? Or is that the... Page three. Page three girls. That's Okay. <clears throat> yeah. 
Not Rupert Murdoch, right? Yeah, that lovely guy. Yeah. So <laughs> it was page page three. But I my job, among other things, was I, I worked mostly nights because I was, you know, I was the young guy and they put you on nights and stuff. And my job was to put the page three girl onto the iPad edition of the newspaper and you could twirl her around. She was like 3D and you <laughs> twirl her around. It was the most awful thing. And I'm it's like 4 a.m. every morning. I couldn't go home until that. It, it was often not working. So I would find myself talking to like a call center in India who were responsible for the sun's software or something at four in the morning. And I'm like, she's not twirling properly. Can you, like, I can see the front side, but not the back side and all that. And they were trying to help me. And I couldn't go home until it was done. So anyway, you know, I what hate a nightmare. Job. <laughs> it was a nightmare. <laughs> it really was a nightmare. Like, I mean, it's, it must have probably affected me after a year of that. Um, but yeah, I started dreaming of like, I've got to get out of here. It was winter. It seemed to be winter the whole time, the whole year. It was like a year of winter at night and I just had to leave and I started looking around. It so happened my cousin, he's a bit, uh, he was a little bit more sort of hippie and stuff. Like I've never been that way at all, but he was working with his girlfriend of the time in like Venezuela uh, on coffee farms and stuff like that. They were out there for years. So they said, why didn't you come out? I was complaining about my job and I was like, I can't go out there. What are you talking about? And he was like, come out. I had no money. So I managed to convince the Sun to send me out to Medellin to write an article about uh, the flower festival that they have there. They have a flower festival. So, and by send me out, they basically said like, we don't really want an article about that. And I was like, come on, can't you send me there? And they were like, no. And I said, what if I get a free flight through uh, KLM or, or one of the Air France or whatever it is? And they were like, if you get that, you can, yeah, okay. They basically allowed me to email uh, airplane companies saying the sun <laughs> would write an article about them and mention them. So I did that, got a free flight, and then just quit my job once I was there. I told them, like, I'm not coming back. They didn't care. <laughs> they just got someone else to do the sun girl. <laughs> oh, no. Who are we going to get to show the woman's backside? <laughs> exactly. At 4 a.m. Exactly. I think... <laughs> I think now it's done with. I think they're finished with it. Um, I don't think they have it anymore. I don't know. So what happened? Uh, went to Medellin, met with my cousin. We worked on some coffee farms and stuff. And then I started finding copywriting work, like online stuff, just anything to keep me going so I could live in Medellin. And um, yeah, learned the language there. It was basically a case of adding like O and A to the end of the words I'd learned in French. So that I found that worked probably 80% of the time. So I could get by it speaking, but then obviously it's like you say in Portugal, when you hear it and it's a totally different thing to French, it was like, oh, I don't know what you said. Right. And of course, as you say, Medellin, Medellin in particular is known as like, they, or at least they sort of gloat about it. They say, this is the neutral uh, Spanish. Accent, yeah. Which, yeah, which, what does that even mean? But, but yeah, okay. Um, <laughs> I used to meet Americans a lot while traveling who would always say, like, I don't have an accent. My accent's neutral. And, like <laughs> <Right>. To my ear, <laughs> to my ear, that is really not neutral. <laughs> it sounds, yeah, it sounds well, nice. I had, I had to, I'm from Chicago, and I had to, uh, nice. when I first went, started working in television, I, yeah, yeah, I see old videos of myself, and um, yeah, my accent was much stronger. You know, mm -hmm. you, you drive it. I'm sure this happens to every presenter when they move to, to London. And they say, oh, and what I is want it? They go, what, Midlands? Wanna... Got it. We got uh, <laughs> Liverpool? No, we're going to have to get that out of your... Uh... Yeah, so it, mine's yeah. much milder now, more of a newsman. I want to I hear, how does it sound when it's strong? Uh, the best examples, and, and I, I always say, celebrity-wise, 
um, Bill Murray has a bit of one. Oh. Um, there's an actor called Dennis Farina who is oh. in uh, uh, Snatch, that Guy Ritchie movie. He's always plays yeah. a gangster or is the guy with a mustache who uh, oh. Vinnie Jones drives around. It's a really yeah, well, heavy. He was the American, the American who came over yeah. to. Yeah, that's the, his accent. If you could ever see anything with him in it, uh, okay. yeah, he was a Chicago cop for many years, uh, and uh, Dennis Franz, who was in NYPD Blue, which is odd. He plays a New York cop with this heaviest right. Chicago accent, and it's like, hey, put it, yeah, put in the plant. We're very flat on our A's and our we pronounce the R's, unlike the East Coast, which they don't pronounce the R's, like in Boston, you know. Hey, put yeah. in the plastic bag, you jag off. You know, that kind of <laughs> <laughs> hey, That sounded to me like, um, what's that comedian's name? Bill Burr. No, Bill's Boston. He's Boston all okay. the way. Okay. Yeah, he's... The, uh, the, the tone, maybe. Yeah, we're very we're more nasal and flat. And, yeah. Ah. But when I hear it, it just cuts through. Like, I'll know when someone's from it. The, I'll, yeah, I'll pick yeah, it out yeah. immediately. Just like I'm sure you can from wherever you're... I yeah, guess there's yeah, like yeah. twenty something different accents in London alone. Yeah, some well, people who know say, it they say that. Yeah, but I mean, you kind <laughs> of know say. what side of town people are from, <laughs> no matter. I've got, I got a rough idea of uh, of that. Maybe a rough idea. It's it's there's a huge thing about class, as you probably know in the UK. There's like oh, a sure, real yeah. class thing. So, and there has there have been efforts recently to sort of include more BBC like diverse voices and stuff. So you do get you get like an inordinate amount of Northern Irish people. I think there are more Northern Irish people on the radio than there are in Northern Ireland now. You just that's not Northern Irish. That's Northern yeah. Irish. It's this real. Um, I like the Irish accent. It's very kind of sing songy <clears throat> and pleasant. For me, uh, Scottish is the hardest one. I Scotland. Yeah, From it's Scotland. the. Most difficult one to understand. I mean, I think that was one of the parts, you know, as a comedian that I, that Billy Connolly had in transferring over that yeah. people just couldn't understand half of what he was saying. Billy unlike, unlike, yeah. It's what's like from Scotland. Yeah, yeah. I mean, a heavy. I mean, there was parts of train spotting. They had to put uh, subtitles. Okay. <laughs> here in london as well did. oh they did okay yeah, <laughs> yeah. things like it's or you just you just sort of make it because obviously it's very it's it's shameful to admit if you can't understand so everybody's just nodding like yeah, that was a good because there's so much slang in that as well yeah They're, yeah i love my favorite british accent is it's always been the welsh accent and there's a particular kind of welsh accent which is in there's a sitcom called gavin and stacy that that did quite well oh quite james corden was in that right that's right. That's right. So he didn't have, he was the London character. It's about his best mate in the film goes and marries a Welsh woman. So they go to Wales and it's a small, it's a very small village kind of, that's the, the, all of the humor sort of comes from it being a very small Welsh village. And instead of like the big town of London, you know, that kind of thing, but that we as they really sing, you know, this yeah. kind of, I love that. And similarly in America, it would be, the equivalent would be maybe the Minnesota accent and, and yeah. some parts of Canada. And that's distinct up there because I would like a Minnesota is different than a Wisconsin accent, even though they're right together. The difference is right. subtle. And the same, same right. thing with the Southern accents, like a Georgia Southern accent is different than a Texas one. Oh man, those, but the, those the people, accents are great. Yeah. The people who know them, I mean, it's subtle, but you have to, but a foreigner yeah. would never like, I mean, most you know, yeah. people in other countries, they, they can't tell any of us yeah. apart. And uh, it's like us going, no. <laughs> I go to, you know, I can kind of tell, kiwis between australians you know like right. it's subtle Ooh. once you yeah. learn it for a little bit but i mean of course they know it immediately yeah they know when yeah, someone's yeah, yeah. a kiwi <laughs> they would, right they off the like bat alarms going off oh sure yeah yeah yeah, yeah. i guess it's why, that sort of the, yeah go on i'm just saying why, when did uh, buenos aires come in because that's my favorite city in south america ah 
Well, I hated Medellin and no one's supposed to say that, right? I don't know what this thing is. You're not allowed to say you hate Medellin. What about Everyone it? Everyone loves Medellin. Um, it felt a little bit like the Truman Show to me. Um, a little bit, maybe Miami. It was like the Miami of South America in that. And, and, and there were obviously really cool parts to both Miami and, uh, and, and Medellin. It was just like, the reason I liked the idea of it was at first was because I'd been in, obviously in, in England in the winter and stuff. And it was like, oh, Medellin, the city of eternal spring, what a lovely place. And it's like unusual and it used to be very dangerous. So it has a cool history, like rugged and cool. And then you get there and it was just so much superficiality. There was so much about the, I mean, obviously it was the after effects of the narco culture. So you just had like, and I was single, right. And you know, I was, I wanted to maybe meet somebody for like a local woman or something, but somebody I could just like talk to and a, a normal, nice, but not that they're not, not God, I'm being horrible. Uh, no, but I know <laughs> as a, as a, you know, and you're, you're a tall guy, right? Yeah. You know, I've seen the videos, you pretty much stand out. <laughs> you, it doesn't, you can't hide well, you know what I mean? No. And just like, you're a white guy walking down the street and I was there by myself yeah. as well. I was just every block offered, uh, you know, approached with you know, prostitutes or drugs, you know, do, do yeah. I want to buy Coke or do you want to, you need a girl or whatever it is, yeah. you know, and it gets exhausting after a while. Exactly. It's like, Hey man, I'm just going to the market. <laughs> Let me yeah. just, I don't, I don't want it today. You know, and exactly. uh, it, it can wear on you. I can see that. Yeah, I can totally see that. It was, it was that. really fun. I think the first month I loved it. And, and when I got there, I felt, before I settled in Medellin, I decided I was going to travel the country because I liked the idea of living in a city and being able to converse with people and be knowledgeable about their country. Like, oh, yes, I was in Cali. I was in Popayan and all these places. Um, and the other places were not as beautiful as Medellin. Most of the other places, apart from maybe like Cartagena and stuff like that. Yeah. I didn't most go to the, Cartagena or Bogota either. I didn't go. Yeah, Bogota, Bogota not, I heard it's exactly, not great. Yeah, not very scenic. It's not scenic. Yeah. Whereas Medellin was just like, whoa, what have I just walked into? It was so beautiful. So I had the most amazing first month or two or three. And then I was there for a year. And it's like, usually people are traveling to Medellin, you know? And the other thing was like, they had been told so many times that it was the best city in the world. So there was just a lot of like, everyone I met was like, hey, do you think this is the best city in the world? And I was like, yes. Yeah. Every taxi driver, <laughs> hey, the women here are amazing. I'm like, yes, yes. Okay. Yes. And I just remember complaining to a friend of mine who, who was from Medellin, a girl I knew, just a friend. Um, and I was with her family. We just became friendly with the family and all that. And the mother had just been to Buenos Aires. And I was complaining once again about Medellin. And the, the friend said, almost in a sort of challenging, annoyed way, she was like, why didn't you just go to Buenos Aires then? And I was like, oh, Never thought of you. You know what's funny? I think when you know, and I'm sure you felt this when you've traveled for a long time and you've been away. Um, you've got friends at home who might say, you know, wow, look at your life, you can do this stuff. And you you need to remind them, like, you know, you probably could as well. Not if you've got kids and stuff, maybe not, but you otherwise you probably could. Um, and it's so funny how natural that human instinct is to stay where you are, even even if you are a traveler. Um and after a year, in, I was a year in Medellin and I forgot that I could leave again. So I was, you know, it was only when she said, you know, you could just go somewhere. There's nothing keeping you here. And I was like, oh, yeah. It was just a light bulb <laughs> moment. And so I decided I was going to travel down and take a bus, you know, from Medellin down to Buenos Aires. A bus? Um, yeah. Well, you really, well, you really took the hard way. Well, this That's is a long I was like, ride. Well, I was like 23 at the time. It was like okay. seven eight years ago. And I thought I was like, you know, I was probably watching like Into the Wild and all those kinds of films. <laughs> you know, I thought if anything, it was like upsetting for me to have to pay a dollar for like a 10 hour bus ride. You know? Sure. Um, 
But I underestimated two things in that journey. I mean, one was the distance. For some reason to me, the map, when it's north to south, doesn't seem very far. What? And west to east does. I don't know why that is. I don't know. It's <laughs> a huge continent, you know. Yeah, I know. But it just, <laughs> it just looked like, it just looked like, okay, well, that's where we just go down. Just down. That's like mm-hmm. going from London to Paris. It's nothing. Um, I've worked it out since. And, you know, as the crow flies, it's the same as going from the UK to Pakistan. So <laughs> the distances are immense and I completely underestimated them. And the roads um, are probably not that good. It's all just, you're like nearly dying with every journey. It's all like on the edge of mountains and stuff. And I was like trying to sleep. And you also, you're just, you know, you are with people who are a different culture from yours. And there is a lot of spitting, right? I hate spitting. I hate it. And I'm, don't go to China. Everyone, <laughs> oh man, is it bad there's <laughs> spitting as well? They're infamous for it. Yes. It's just, a, it's just a different culture, you know, and, and it, disgust is something that you, and revulsion, you actually learn it. It's not, it's not uh, in you. So we've just learned that spitting is horrible and it doesn't mean it, it's nothing wrong with those cultures, but it really creeps me out. So there's just <laughs> spitting and there's a lot of trashing in, you know, just throwing stuff out the window and it was just driving me mad. I was hot and annoyed. I underestimated as well, like who I was. I'm not, I'm just not that person who's just going to get a bus for several weeks down to Argentina. So I got down to Quito in Ecuador, which is like right next to Colombia. I know you didn't make it that far. (laughs) No, I just said, I'm getting, I'm getting a plane. plane (laughs) Yeah, there you go. Buenos Aires. (laughs) Sense took over. You didn't ride three days or four days with a, next to a guy holding a chicken. I wasn't doing that anymore. <laughs> and, and look, I know, I'm aware as well that there'll be people listening because obviously as listeners, they're obviously travel fanatics and stuff like that. And there is this, it's almost, get, it gets religious. I'm sure you've felt this as well. It can get religious traveling in, in a sense of like uh, this sort of exoticism, this fetishization of, of different cultures. And you're not supposed to say you didn't enjoy Medellin. You're not supposed to say that, oh God, all the people there were spitting out the window, but that was just what was happening, you know? Um, no, and and I, I think... Yeah, go yeah. on. No, it's a hard... Uh, yeah, you're right. I mean, it, and also, I mean, with age, after a while, you come... And first of all, you're also a tall guy. What are you, six, four, five, mm, or something? Yeah, six, six, three, six, four. Yeah, I mean, I rode a bus down fr- uh, from um, Hanoi, you know, the coast of <laughs> down to, like Saigon almost. And these buses yeah. are not made for a uh, tall white guy. <laughs> you know, I can tell you that much. And I'm six feet. And yeah. it was brutal, man. I mean, these I couldn't move my legs. I, yeah. could, I could, and I was crammed into this thing. And I went, oh God, if I could afford it, I would not. I would not do yeah. this. Yeah. And but that's part of the religious thing, isn't it? Especially for much younger travelers, the whole part of it is like the more uncomfortable you are, uh, yeah. and the more you rev- revere the local people. You've got to say like everything we do is wrong and everything they do is right, and I've got to be really uncomfortable now because that's the real way to live. And I think you go through that stage where you're a bit patronizing to your parents and you're like oh you're staying in a hotel are you yeah (laughs) i'm gonna sleep on a on the pavement for no reason on the sidewalk but a one day bus ride is different than a one week bus ride which you were trying i mean that was that's brutal i mean you're going through mountains and stuff you got to fly over those babies you can't be you can't uh, risk that i don't know what i was thinking it was ridiculous it was totally ridiculous yeah there's no autobahn there (laughs) <laughs> and I, I wouldn't want the way that some people drive in south america i mean in Argentina, yeah, yeah. I, wouldn't, I wouldn't want that but <laughs> how long did um, you stay in quito or did you just go right to the airport 
I was there three days. You know what I really liked actually there was the um there's the I've never been. of the world museum. Oh, right, there's a, there's the there's the equator, right? Which yeah. is what the word word Ecuador thought about it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's the equator. So they've got um they've got like a bit you can go and visit the line that is the equator. And what's really cool, I don't know if you remember that Simpsons episode when Bart asks if Australians can if it goes the other way, their um toilet toilet water, yeah. Way. Yeah. You can they do a thing where they give you like a like a portable sink and they put like some leaves in it and they throw water in it and it spins and then you walk a meter the other way like a few feet and it goes the other way <laughs> how insane is that that's great i feel like they might have been doing a trick on me but i'm yeah. <laughs> so again someone might be listening who's like that's not how it works uh, i fell for me. the old magic trick yeah but i was i was amazed with, with i loved that um, but that was Ecuador. Uh, yeah, Ecuador's, I only know Quito. They've got the most beautiful mountains and volcanoes and stuff. Uh, and I, I just, I just saw Quito and I was just, I was so depressed by that point. I was like, get me on a plane. <laughs> but I mean, as a, you know, a Brit and a European, uh, to land in, uh, Buenos Aires, you're going, okay, I feel a lot more at home here. It must've, cause yeah. it's a very European city yeah you know it's probably the most that's, european that's city in all of south america you could be in yeah. spain you know you could be yeah. you know it looks like italy or something i mean yeah where did it hit you immediately it's like okay this is a different place it did it did and the longer i talk the more i'm aware again this is of course a travel podcast and i'm really aware <laughs> that people would be listening god like this guy's a grouch he's a grouch he doesn't want to experience other cultures at hates all. everything <laughs> got off the plane started I spitting I just, <laughs> I just thought like i need I'm not traveling anymore, really. I'm living in a place. When it's that long, you're just living there. And I I loved that idea as well. Whenever I've traveled just for a few weeks, I have found myself so tired and worn down. And and I also feel coming out of it, you know, people always say this thing of like, oh yeah, I did uh, Medellin. Have you done Cartagena? They do this, they use the word to do uh, as though you've done it. And you've been there a few days. You don't really... And that, that's why I wanted to stay in one place and learn the language, meet local friends. I thought that's the only way to really know the differences and the cultures and stuff. And Medellin obviously didn't work for me, but it has worked for so many friends of mine who are other like English and Americans out there. So it's it's obviously, you know, it's a beautiful place and the people are so friendly. So it's great. And a big um, uh, digital nomad uh, place. You know, a lot of yeah, a lot of people there, expats and yeah. stuff. And I know a few people living there and, uh, you know, they love it. But I mean, a lot of them there for the for the price. <laughs> you know, yeah. and we just talked to uh, interviewed last week was uh, another uh, who specializes in expat. He's in uh, Panama. He's in Panama City, mm. which is another big hub there. Oh, is it? oh yeah. Massive international hub. Oh. So um, Argentina has a lot going for it other than the fact that it's the, like you said, the hardest thing. It's far. It's very far from everything. So far, so far. It's it's somehow further. It's like it's so weird when you go to a place that's really far away and somehow like it's still really far away to everyone. Like I thought, well, we've gone so far from England. We must be near Australia, but it's still the <laughs> other side of the world to Australia. You're like, how can it both? I don't know how maps work that the UK <laughs> and Argentina and the States are all the furthest away from uh, Australia. Nothing's near Australia. So that is really the middle of nowhere, isn't it? Yeah. Well, for, I mean, this is the hardest thing about living in California. You know, we're far from everything. And I've always admired, you know, and envied, People in Europe, and especially if you live near a big hub like that, you're pretty much at the center. You're about an 11 hour flight at most to just about everywhere in the world. Uh, yeah. For us, I mean, it's, I mean, it takes me six hours to go to New York 
You know, it's a three hour time difference. It's what are we? You're in Berlin and it's a nine hour time difference. The time change alone will crush you. So the only advantage we really have in California really is Hawaii, which is probably the farthest you could go from from your home. Um, And uh, Australia is is a bit easier for us. Oh, really? Montreal. Is is Montreal near you? No. What's on the west coast? No, no, no. Vancouver. Vancouver Vancouver is very far for you. Montreal is more uh, closer to New York. It's uh, uh, it's the other side. More east, yeah. Okay, so you got Vancouver. That would be cool. I'd love to see that. You got Napa Beautiful. Valley and all that stuff. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. California is a, a country in itself, but I suppose it's the same as Buenos Aires. It has its own beautiful stuff. But absolutely, you want to like take a weekend holiday to Croatia? It's not going to happen. No, no. It's like for us. I remember going to South Africa. It was pretty much the that in India were two of the farthest yeah. flights I've taken. But anywhere in Africa for us is ugh. Man, it's just brutal. I, I usually have to go through to, London or so yeah. or Frankfurt or you know, and then and even then it's eleven yeah. hours to London. And then I gotta oh go another <laughs> eleven to, yeah. to to Cape Town or whatever or Johannesburg. Yeah. And I went, Oh, this is this is painful. So it, it's that maybe it's Londoners, I think, have taken. I, I took that for granted. I think. Oh yeah, my friends probably did. We really did take that for granted. We're the epi- every, now since I've been away, I'm living in. Even if it's Germany, Argentina, wherever, you seem to have to fly through London and change yeah. over. So he throws we, a zoo. It's so crazy. Yeah, it's mad. It's mad. <laughs> so was the plan to go to Argentina? Did you get there and go? I'm staying for a while, or to just end mm. up that way? Yeah, I think it was like, okay, this will be the place where I live forever. Again, I was being a bit rebellious and 23 or 24, and I wanted to maybe get away from my family a bit at that time and just have my own me time and rebel. Um, And Argentina, as you say, it's so European. And so it was something that I I learned a lot about myself, you know, because I had wanted to be this guy who's like, the more different, the better. And now I feel like, yes, for a week or two, but but living. And Buenos Aires was the perfect mix of like, I still get to practice a language. I still get to have an exotic, different culture, but it's basically home. I mean, it's not England. It's nothing like England, but it's it's closer to that. So I didn't really have a plan as such, except it was like, I'm going to live here forever without, you know, I was so young. I didn't know what I was doing. I was still copywriting and stuff. I had vague aspirations of making documentaries. Um and yeah, I'd, my parents were really upset because I just didn't really give them any any hope there'd be a return date one day. <laughs> so, and it, as you say, it's such a long way. It's 14 hours from London. So on, on the plane. So I was there for, and oh yeah, and what you were saying about the language in Argentina. Yeah, because I had learned Medellin Spanish. So it was a real shock. It was like, I'm going to have to basically learn a language again. And it's funny, I now speak Spanish, obviously with my English accent or whatever it is, but with an Argentine <laughs> variation of it. You know, I use all the Argentine inflections and the conjugate. The conjugation changes. That's the most mad thing. They, we don't have such a difference between British and American English where, I mean, the closest difference in conjugation we can get is there are certain parts of both America and Britain where you has a plural S at the end, like use, hey, use guys. Yeah, well, <laughs> you know. yeah. <laughs> well, it's funny when whenever whenever Brits try to do an American accent, it's usually one of two things. They either do uh, it's either uh, Robert De Niro and and Al Pacino and every uh, Scorsese movie, hey, you do do you know some crazy you know that, yeah, or it's the uh, you know the Texas cowboy, Yahoo, partner, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. but it's usually one or the other, and just like well, look, you, and Americans do the same be- thing with Brits, you know, it's either. Um, 
the queen. Yes, oh, I'm Lord Whiff and Poof of the <laughs> or it's um, you know, uh hello, governor, cockney, you know, yeah. kind of uh Dick Van Dyke and Mary, Mary Poppins. Mary Poppins. <laughs> yeah. So it's just we yeah. can't that's how we hear each other, I guess. I mean, those are the easy the easy stereotypes, but well, yeah. we, I think because if you want to do uh, a good, imp- you know, a nuanced impression of, of uh, it, you've got to be a really good impressionist. That's the oh, yeah. thing. I don't know if it's, it's not necessarily like if I'm thinking of American accents, I can think of loads of them. I can't reproduce them, but I could, of course, I could, I could do some sort of, hey, I'm walking here, you know. Yeah, Dustin but it's a, as an actor, uh, <laughs> you know, seeing so many um, British actors come here and do it flawlessly, you know, and and you don't even find out that they're, British until oh. you see him on a chat show or something. Wait a minute, that he's what? Uh, and yeah. but it doesn't seem to work in reverse. Like Americans can't go there and seem mm. to nail a, a an English accent. Some, some people really do it okay, ones. but it's there's been some really mm. bad ones. But some people pulled it off. There's been. I mean, Kevin Costner's known. Oh yeah, well, really Robin bad. Hood. <laughs> that yeah. was a bad then, one. <laughs> uh, Keanu Reeves in uh, Dracula. Oh no. Yeah, yeah, that's really bad. They say Renee Zellweger did okay in uh, Bridget Jones. They said she did, but what she did, I think, and and maybe people might disagree with this, but I think what she did was an accent that doesn't exist except in movies. If you know what I mean, a little bit like that transatlantic accent that that, that used to exist like fifty yeah. years Roger ago. Roger Moore and Cary Grant and all those. Yeah, yeah why? Yeah. I don't know, maybe not today, uh, or maybe not tomorrow. Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> Nobody spoke like that. And, and <laughs> oh, Bridget Jones, uh, Hugh Grant does it, and it's how he actually talks. So, so they do exist. <laughs> right. These yeah. people, you know, uh, uh, quite possibly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, this like does that exist? Maybe it's not. Doesn't sound like a real voice to me. It doesn't. <laughs> But but the American, like I said, Minnesota. That's my favorite. Oh yeah, watch Fargo. Yeah, the movie. <laughs> I loved. I loved every minute of that because. Of yeah, that. you betcha. Oh, oh. Right. oh yeah, yeah. Inject that into my veins. Oh, that. that's. Oh my god, it's so annoying. One of the <laughs> least it. attractive accents coming out of a no, woman's mouth. I can tell you that. It's the most. It's the most attractive. <laughs> the uh, yeah. so, but I want to get back. So Buenos Aires. Yeah. Did do. I saw a little bit of the documentary. Mm. On the exorcist guy. Yeah. yeah. You found a priest down there who performs exorcists. How big yeah. of a, and he's quite a celebrity there, mm. right? Yeah. And yeah. usually the church, I'm assuming he's a Catholic priest. Um, he's actually, you know what? Everybody assumes that and I let them, I don't really, it's all the same to me, but he's actually Lutheran. Oh, oh really? Okay. Yeah. Um, what made you want to do a film on this guy? And mm. I can't imagine that they were, so receptive to it because there are so many skeptics i'm sure they thought you were going to take some kind of here's an outsider coming in and you know (laughs) is he mocking us is he what was their reception Mm. first of all explain the guy and what he does okay well yeah he's padre padre manuel acuna and he's got a huge following on you know they've got they're really set up with modern stuff so there's a whole youtube production there's a whole you know which i guess a lot of these people have now but this was uh, when i first met him 5 6 years ago twitter and all this stuff and he's based in the impoverished suburbs of buenos aires and i had seen him a few times when i'm just flicking channels on the tv because they have in argentina what you guys have as well and i think it came from you guys uh those kinds of uh, evangelical evangelical preachers sort of 
Yeah. yeah. We don't really have it in the UK. We don't have, not well, of course we have evangelical preachers, but we don't have those TV shows. We still get people pretending they can speak to the dead or whatever, oh, and getting sure. people from yeah. the audience and stuff. But we don't have the, the, that kind of like, call this number and donate the money. Now. Sorry, I'm doing the accent again. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> you betcha. <laughs> you betcha. <laughs> you betcha, bottom dollar. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> thank you kindly. I like that one. <laughs> oh, that's, thank you kindly. What's that? That's a Southern thing. Text. That's a Southern thing. Southern. True. Yeah, yeah. Can. I do declare. <laughs> I do declare. So, um, <laughs> um, yeah, no. So, so I, I'm, I've always been very secular. Very, you know, I don't like religious. I don't like religious thinking. Whether it's you know politically, you know, they say about the the USSR was they they had no. It was an atheist country. They set themselves up as atheists, but it was about as religious as it can get in terms of obeying certain rules and dogma and stuff like that. So anything that is like really dogmatic, tribal polemic not polemic the wrong word ideological that kind of thing so uh yeah i just hate it he's taking advantage of people that's what i assumed of course and and this is the thing because with journalism i think there is a bit too much activism in journalism nowadays and i think it should really be just i'm here to tell a story this is the story but i went in there pretty biased just because it was like and I will try really hard when I do other stories to not be biased, even if it's really against something that I thought I'll try and go in there. I did abortion, for example, I did a documentary about abortion and I personally am pro-choice or whatever, but I went in there to try and be like, everyone is entitled to their opinion. Let's hear both sides. With The Exorcist, it was like, well, this is, you know, there's no side there. That's mad. I don't believe in ghosts. I, this is, this, so it's nonsense. And the, so the only thing to think about was, is he somebody who believes in what he's doing? And then he's, mad you know or is he somebody who knows that he's making this up in which case he's a charlatan and he's stealing money from people and i i imagine it's somewhere between the two i it's taken me years to come to that conclusion i think about him a lot and i think he must have some on some level convinced himself that he is some sort of godly whatever some a vessel for you know god and on another level somewhere within him he probably knows it's not it's not real but uh, it wasn't that hard to convince him because he was just so in love with himself. He's the kind of guy that, you know, you look around his church and he superimposed his face badly onto various cinematic creations. So like the Exorcist film, there's like the Exorcist standing there and it's got his face just plopped on it. <laughs> um, so, and they used to play at mass. They would play uh, tubular bells, the music from the Exorcist. Oh, boy. Okay. So, yeah, this guy was so in love with himself with that kind of thing. When I emailed him and I said to him, "Listen, I'm a I'm a freelance journalist, so I can't promise where where this would go, but I want to come and film you." And I have spoken with the BBC about it. There's a chance it could go there. And as soon as he heard the word BBC, well, this was by email. As soon as he saw it, you know, he was all over it. He was replying in like capital letters all the time, like really pious stuff, like you know, uh, "Blessed be the fruit," that kind of thing. Uh, and he just gave us like yeah uh, unlimited time with him <laughs> and and as as that went on we filmed for about five or six weeks he did become a lot more cautious and the second part of the film is a lot about him avoiding me because i would do you know who louis theroux is louis theroux yeah so he's, he's a writer a, yeah yeah well his dad's a writer paul theroux okay yeah and louis is his son his cousin was married to jennifer aniston um Justin. Justin. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. So so Louis makes documentaries. He started actually with Michael Moore on his uh, TV Nation thing like 20 years ago. And he's a presenter and he he goes and talks to it, you know. Yes, yeah. And it's a very, very British thing 
uh, and I, you have that in America as well, but it's, it's, it's this very like, it's a bit sneaky because you're going up to people. Uh, I see it a lot in America actually with like Trump stuff. It's, it'll be like a, a, <clears throat> a lefty person or an anti-Trump person who goes to a Trump rally and he asks questions with a straight face. Like, do you think this, like a ridiculous thing about Trump? And they're going, yeah, yeah, we do. It's, it's, there is some of that. And it's something that I was doing. And it's something that maybe now I wouldn't do as much. It's like, as you get older, maybe um, going up to someone with a straight face, but you're actually mocking them. Yeah. You know I, I, mean? I don't have the stomach for it. You know, it's, it's almost yeah. like, you know, Borat takes it to another level. That's it. <laughs> but That's it. Uh, uh, I was never good at that as much yeah. in terms of, um, I don't want to, am. it's easy to make people look foolish, especially with editing. Exactly. You know, yeah. you can, yeah. You know, what people say, uh, you know, Jay Leno on the Tonight Show used to do that all the time and go to just go to a mall and start asking people basic geography questions or something. And of course, you know, the people would get and to see that what you don't see is all the people who got the answers right. Yeah, of course. you know, <laughs> you know what I mean, so of course, you're going to keep the funny stuff. But yeah, I see what you're saying. But did the tone of what you were shooting change as it went? I mean, as yeah. he started to block you a little bit more. Yeah, hugely. And, and not even that before that, actually. So I went in with that attitude a little bit. So I did. So it was basically, there is a there is an urge in me to push uh, and to annoy someone a little bit like that game. Do you have Buckaroo? You know, you put the last, you pick, it's that game, you put a straw, you keep putting it on the camel and eventually it like explodes. Okay, yeah. Um, one of those games. Um, and I feel like that. I've got a nudge. I'm nudging and pushing. And with the exorcist, it was like, he took me seriously. And I'm asking him on camera, like, so, you know, a few, a few normal questions. And then I would throw in, and what about vampires? Are there any vampires here today? It would be like that kind of thing. And every time I expected him to sort of maybe, I'm, I'm risking it. I'm flying too close to the sun here. I kept expecting it. And then he would just, he would just wow me with just responding completely genuinely to it. Like vampire. Yeah. Well, we've had vampires here. Yeah, 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 yeah. Quite a few. I was like, Oh, and it's like, I don't know where to go. It's almost like you can't make satire anymore because he's gone so far. Um, so it was just, it was mad. But yeah, where it all changed was actually after the first exorcism that we watched because I went into exorcism as something I had seen maybe on Vice or YouTube. You see bits of exorcism stuff sometimes. And it's always set up as this sort of quite funny practice of like, look at these funny, weird, probably Mexican or Argentinian or Irish maybe people, um, you know, Catholic countries usually. Uh, look how ridiculous they are and how silly this is. Ha, ha, ha. And those are usually quite short films and stuff and you don't get to know the actual people involved. But we had gotten to know the woman, the first woman who was undergoing this exorcism. And she had what sounded like either a very extreme form of obsessive compulsive disorder or quite possibly schizophrenia. I'm not a doctor, but somewhere, you know, she was talking about hearing voices all the time, intrusive thoughts, urges, shakes, which all of those things obviously seem like what you would imagine uh, a demon inside you would, would provoke as well. So she was just having a bad time. And that's the thing. Suddenly this fun, silly documentary was like, oh, this is actually a mental illness and it's really quite sad. And uh, we we spoke to her quite a lot. We're like, are you sure you want to do this? And she was like, yeah, you know, I've tried everything else. And so you see her lying down in front of you. And because we had set this up as a funny thing, like this is not in, not necessarily funny, but maybe intrepid, maybe like I'm going in and I'm going to do this. We got me to take part in the exorcism. So what had seemed funny, which was that I'm ringing the bells, 
So I'm like standing over her ringing the bells, which are supposed to ward off Satan. But obviously everyone knows I'm mocking it. Now suddenly what had been a funny thing is me now standing over a really vulnerable, mentally ill person and like shaking bells in her face, uh, you know, as a joke. So I was, it was like the moment I'm standing there and my friend David is filming and I'm thinking this is really inappropriate. This is, and then the tone shifted and he started to avoid us more. So we were at the church nearly every day and he's avoiding us. And I was asking a few more questions about where he was procuring these women. And as it turned out, it was often in, um, there was a psychiatric ward nearby where there were women with um, schizophrenia and stuff. They tended to be women. Um, and he was sort of telling them they had a demon and checking them out of the hospital because they, they weren't bound to be there. Um, and then performing these these things on them, the exorcisms. And there's one woman who who stayed with him. She's like 20 or something now. I've, you know, she was overage. There was never like a pedophilia or anything like that going on. But it was obviously not appropriate, not appropriate for a 50 year old exorcist to be doing any of that stuff. And as the documentary goes on, um, it got back to him that I'd been asking more and more people in the community, like, "Hey, what's the deal with him and this girl?" Because they were like going upstairs together a lot, and they seemed to both live in the church, and no one was being clear with us. And one journalist I spoke to, he was like a tabloid journalist who's got great links to the Exorcist. He was a big fan of the Exorcist, and he always wrote about his paranormal stuff in the newspaper. It's ridiculous. And we had a conversation on camera where I filmed him and I was like, so you're a journalist, you're a local journalist. Tell me about the, and he was like, yeah, we're going to film like a multiple exorcism tomorrow. There's going to be 20 exorcisms at the same time, you know, just an absolute charlatan or whatever. Um, and whatever happened, I must've rubbed him the wrong way or he had seen me as competition. I don't know, but basically he went and told the exorcist that I had asked why he kisses this girl called Paula on the lips which I had never asked and I hadn't seen it either. I had I, I assumed something might be going on with them, but I hadn't asked that. And the next thing I know, I didn't know that had happened, but uh, we're preparing for this big mass that we were going to shoot. Uh, like thousands of people are outside, like maybe 5,000 people onto the streets. There are police and stuff there keeping everyone there. He's backstage getting ready. Um, and we had been having days or weeks of not being able to get hold of him. He wouldn't talk to us. He was just never there. He's... He, He's ill. He's not feeling well. Anyone we ask, you know. And then the assistant comes over to us and says, uh, Andrew, you can, <clears throat> he wants to speak to you now. So I was just looking at like thousands of people and like, okay, I'm going to go backstage now. And he says, come in here a minute. And I was with David and we were with an intern called Demian as well, Argentine uh, intern. And he wouldn't let them come in. He would say, no, you guys stay outside. You stay outside. Andrew's coming in. And we were like, well, what's going on here? And he closed the door and he had about, you know, 10 people in there, big guys. And he was going, he suddenly got all godfathery. And I, I knew he was loving it. But the thing is, we were out at like, I think it was one in the morning. There's like a crowd of thousands of people who would do anything for him, right? They're going into, getting into a rapture. They're really going crazy. Nobody knew where we were because we, we weren't filming this with the BBC. We were just doing it on our, off our own back. So nobody knew where we were. We're in the middle of an impoverished area that we didn't even know how we were going to get home from. We had all this expensive equipment we'd borrow, borrowed from friends and stuff. And it was probably the scariest moment of my life because my legs turned to jelly. And he just looked at me and he goes, why have you been telling people in the community and asking about why I kiss Paolo on the lips? And I just was like, I, I did not ask that. I did not. A anyway, the whole time, this was like an hour of him being very intimidating and eventually screaming. And we got it. I didn't even realize at the time because I was so scared, but my microphone was still recording. So we got enough of like what is 
absolutely bonkers, like screaming, making me call him sir and all that kind of weird stuff. And we got it all. And my friend David had also left his camera on. So at least it's facing the door and you can see little bits behind the door and stuff because there's a glass bit at the top. And he made our film basically, because otherwise we would have had a sort of simple, you know, film about an exorcist. Okay. Now we had like a nutcase who had just revealed everything in the film. And that, if he hadn't done that, we probably wouldn't have been able to sell it to the BBC. So what has been, when did it air on the BBC? Uh, end of 2018. Okay. Has, what has been the reaction and the, the fallout from all this? Well, in terms of him, um, when we got all that legal stuff done, we had to send him an email uh, that the lawyers wrote up for us. And it was like, and I was saying the whole time, I was like, guys, I know this place. I know this person. Like, he's not going to sue us. He doesn't know. And they were like, yeah, but we have to do it because you just have to get this all covered. You can't not, you know? So we sent him a whole thing like, here are 10 accusations we've made against you in this film. And he replied again, all capital letters, just like, I don't give my permission. May the Lord smite you or some nonsense. Um, so that was that was him. And then, yeah, I tried to keep making documentaries. I spoke to those people at the BBC and I said, like, look, I speak these languages. I've got some ideas. I wanted to make one about abortion, which I then went and made again for free. And they just weren't really very interested. I mean, the film itself won some festival awards and it placed in the BBC's best of 2018 list. There was like a list of 20 things they had on. Um, so but if, they he, didn't want- if he didn't sign the release, then how did they air it? They, he signed an initial release. That's the thing. So he has to sign a contributor release when before we started filming. And we luckily, we didn't know that much about filming at the time, but we knew that. So we printed off all these pages and this was, this was when he loved it. We're the BBC coming in to film him, you know, so he signed all that stuff. And what happens a surprising amount of times, you know, people don't know that they sign something and then you finish editing and then they go, actually, I don't want you to do it anymore. And you're like, I've literally been working on this for two years. Of course you, you can't like the whole, the whole documentary business wouldn't work if somebody could easily withdraw their permission. But usually, well, at least dealing with anybody involved in a church, yeah, he might do it, but then eventually the church, the big church will step in and go, hey, no, mm. we can't. Did you ever hear from his church or like the organization? No, I think he was one of many sort of, uh, they're almost like freelancers. Rogue, and and stuff. <laughs> Rogue yeah. uh, priest. I did. There was another point in the film where I emailed, I emailed like the head Lutheran something or rather, I don't even know what in Argentina. And they replied saying like, no, we don't, we don't know this guy. Oh, they said like, yes, he once came to, to train as a bishop or something and didn't complete training. But then, then I got a message from his assistant. Like, what's with this? You've been asking the Lutheran thing about, about us, have you? And I was like, oh, I, well, and he was like, yeah, you see, they tell us, don't they? And apparently, you know, and I got another email from another Lutheran organization going, yes, he's a real, he's the real deal. And don't you mess with him. It's all just, I, who knows who's <laughs> responsible for all of this stuff. It's, it's nonsense. What was the fallout in Buenos Aires? I mean, has it affected his standing there? No, no. I got quite a few emails from people saying, thank you for doing this because, you know, uh, something bad happened with me, la di da I went back and spoke a year later. This was part of it, actually, because it took us a year and a half to get the BBC to take it, you know, to get mm-hmm. them to watch it even. I mean, it's so hard. And it's not that's not their fault as such. It's just they're getting so many emails from people all the time. So it took a long time to get them to watch it. And by the time, you know, one of the last parts of the, the legal advice we got was you have to now go and double check that one of the young girls, there was a 17-year-old who was bulimic and had anorexia, and she underwent an exorcism. Um, 
and it was stuff like that we had to go and check it was okay with her and i was like yeah but we got her to sign the thing and they're like yeah but this is different this isn't like the exorcist this is a uh, duty of care that we have if she were to kill herself or something after this came out you know it would be no good i you know so i had to go back out to argentina and go and speak to her and it was the hardest thing ever because i wanted to be really like um understanding and stuff but if she said to me like yeah actually i don't want you to put it out anymore it's like that's that's my career done finished it's my one shot and you know and uh, when i spoke to her to be honest she wasn't like yeah it's fine she was a bit like oh i didn't know i had this option still so you're saying what is it a document i don't even remember this do you want maybe dad do we want that and i'm sitting there just like in a panic and i was like trying to be really cool and i was trying to be like the reverse psychology a bit like well no no we can cancel it it looks good you look really good on it actually but uh we could cancel i was trying to like work out what was the best play here and eventually they were like, okay, yeah, it's fine. And they like, I got them on audio saying it was fine. So, well, okay. So let's get out of um, Argentina. Well, first of all, just to put the end on the, um, on the film, can people see it now? Is it out there online? Can mm. people find it? Yeah, fortunately, the BBC <laughs> took it for all the rights worldwide forever. So you can see it wherever you are in the world forever. Um, they, they, you know, that's it meant that we weren't able to sell it to other countries or anything like that and but fine uh it's just type in youtube uh they put it on their youtube channel in the uk it's on bbc iplayer their their online thing and and worldwide you just type in exorcism andrew gold that's probably enough bbc okay yeah cool so you were in you were in buenos aires all told for how how many years six years six years okay Mm -hmm. and there you met this woman and then now you're in berlin What would happen in between? I mean, six years, you made your living not only shooting the film, but doing online Mm. copywriting and things like that. Yeah. Well, before the exorcism film, there were a couple of uh, the short documentaries I was talking about that I made for uh, Fusion, which they then sold to HBO, which was cool. I don't even know if they ever aired, but they paid us what for me was a lot of money at the time to... I made two videos for them. One was um, about cheating about infidelity oh here's a story man uh, oh good <laughs> um yeah infidelity right so so <laughs> it was mad because i'd never done anything at this point apart from the, the doing the page three girl at the sun or whatever <laughs> not not doing the page three like, yeah attaboy uh, yeah checking the backside <laughs> checking the backside from india <laughs> i was doing all of that yeah man so i had made actually a couple of little videos or whatever you know but nothing and then this was the first i i sent an email off to um fusion univision and i was amazed they called a few months later and they're like like i'm not going to do the accent now but they were like hello <laughs> hello <laughs> um is this andrew yeah we've heard you know this cheating idea you've got because i thought people in argentina were they're a little bit more celebratory is that a word they're a bit more uh what's the word for celebratory 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 <laughs> yeah i don't, I don't know, know. They, that's they, another english uh, you know <laughs> I'll give you aluminium. Aluminium, I can't say. I think we, yeah. we changed that. Aluminium and uh, what was the other one? Aluminum. Yeah. Oregano. Yeah. Say oregano. Do you say oregano? oregano? Yeah. Ah, yeah. See, I can't get used to that. That, yeah, that rocket. Quite nice. What is rocket? Rocket, rocket is... Um, Rucola. Arugula. There you go. Oh, oh, right. Yeah. Okay. okay. So in Argentina, Germany, they call it rucola. Rucola. Okay. Yeah. So, so infidelity. So are they... Is it more of a Latin thing that they everybody has a yeah. mistress and um, well, I, <laughs> that thought kind of so. I thought so, but people got pissed off when I suggested it, so oh, right. I don't know how I feel about that. But I did I'm stereotyping that. again. 
Well, no, but that's what I, that's exactly what I did when I got there. And you can imagine what people thought of a guy coming from England, England of all places in Argentina. We're not the most popular people. In our, oh, it's thanks to the Falklands. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like when I got there, my dad was always saying like, tell them you're Australian. Tell them you're Australian. Don't let anyone know. It was all fine in the end, but there is a lot of, they do talk about the Falklands a lot, whereas most English people don't even know what it was because we have so many wars. We're at war all the time. Yeah. We're probably at war now. I don't even know. Um, oh, we are. We're, we yeah. just assume here that we're, we're at war somewhere in the world yeah. at all times. <laughs> Unless someone tells, tells us we're not, let's presume that we are both. Yeah, so we, lear- we learned that from you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're getting good at it. Yeah. So, yeah, what happened? Oh, yeah, so they said yes to it, right? It was just a stupid idea. It was basically written on the back of a cigarette packet, that kind of idea, you know, just like, um, cheating. And then suddenly it was like, oh, they're giving us money. We've got to find something. How do you film cheating? Well, you can't because we went and spoke to those people and everyone was like, yeah, I cheat, but I'm not going to talk about it on camera. I'm like, oh my God, what are we going to do? So, and there were things like nights, like Thursday night in Buenos Aires is cheating night. That's when you, that's when people, you know, historically go out and cheat on their girlfriend or boyfriend or whatever. Um, but what we cheating found night. eventually- <laughs> Yeah, I don't. It's like good fellas. It was like Saturday was with your family, and uh, Friday that was you know for your girlfriend and at the Copa. That was yeah. It does all sound like good fellas, and those bars are a bit like the places in Goodfellas. Some of them they are a bit that way. (laughs) So uh, it was hard to find, hard to do. We were really panicking because it was such a big opportunity, and I now know even more how rare that was for somebody to just say, "Here's some money, go and make a documentary," because it hasn't happened since. Right? It's in five, six years. Um. And what I found, what we found, and I was working with a great production company there, a bunch of Dutch guys, studio buyers out there. And they got me onto a radio show uh, with a guy called Andy Kuznetsov, who's a really big deal. He's like the Howard Hughes of, uh, is that his name? No, Howard, is that his name? Howard, no, Stern. Yeah. Oh, Howard Stern. The yeah, not the, not the airplane guy. Yeah, I was like, Howard DJ. Hughes, uh, the old, uh, okay. <laughs> yeah, that's the Leonardo DiCaprio film, yep, isn't it? That, um, yeah, Howard yeah. Stern. He's the Howard Stern of uh, Buenos Aires. Exactly. He's a big deal there. But he has a show where people call up and they say, I've always been attracted to my friend's mum, but I have a wife or whatever. And then they get the friend's mum on the phone. And the rules of the game are, so she's like, hello. And then you say, oh, it's me, your son's friend. And you have to ask three questions. And it's like, before you're allowed to say, you know, the, the, the catchphrase of the show, which is the catchphrase of the show is like, basically, are you up for it? Are you down for it? You know? Uh, so they have to say like, how are you? And the mum's it's not always a mum, but I've, there's a few I heard. It was like a friend's mum. <laughs> they're like, uh, I'm okay. Uh, yes. Why are you, go-? you know? And they go, Oh, good, good. Uh, what are you up to today? And they got to ask these three questions and then are you down for it? And then they realize they're on the show and a remarkable amount of them say, yes. I, I don't know how that, <laughs> I don't know how that happens. So I went on the show to be like with this, you know, Howard Stern equivalent uh, because I was making the documentary and he was saying, hey, I've got Andrew here from England and he's making a documentary and uh, people called in to say like, I don't agree with you or I do agree with you, that kind of thing going on. As it happened, just complete coincidence, before me, the guest was Vigo Mortensen, right? Oh. (laughs) Which you wouldn't expect. Yeah. He he wasn't he wasn't in the studio, but he was in Argentina at the time, and he was on he was he was doing a phone call conversation, uh, and he grew up in Argentina. So, oh, okay, um, I didn't know that. Nobody, yeah, nobody knows that. So he's like he's got a real thick like uh, Buenos Aires accent. He is a real big fan of the, the one of the local football teams. So Boca is he a Boca man or a River man? Neither, because he's too hipster for that. Oh, okay. What's left? <laughs> so he's uh, San Lorenzo. 
Oh, okay, sure. Yeah, there's lo- there were like eight teams. Oh uh, yeah, I went to two. Players. I went to two Boca Juniors matches. Ah, at the Bombonera. That was crazy, crazy. It is. Yeah. It's so anyway, so Vigo Mortensen. He, they said, Vigo, what do you think about these people, these English person and this Dutch company coming in and saying that Argentines cheat? So he was like, they're a bunch of idiots. What are they talking about? All this, you know, he really laid into us. He's joking, but he was really having a go at us. And because Argentines, you know, I think they were so excited at the idea that this Hollywood A-lister is sort of defending them against, um, you know, these these English colonialist pirates, they call us pirates. Um, (laughs) It became sort of a big story. And I got invited onto loads of sort of really big TV shows then. And we were thinking at the time, like, we've got this radio show as part of our, our video we're making for Fusion. We've got nothing else. So I guess we can talk about how cheating is such a big deal in Argentina that they've now invited me onto a big TV show. We were sort of trying to be meta. So um, I went on this TV show, the most popular one in the country. There's like millions of people watching. And... I went in and at this time I was an idiot, right? I still am an idiot, but I was really an idiot back then. And I I just hadn't crossed my mind that Argentines would be offended by what I was doing. So I went in there thinking, God, everyone's going to be like, oh, you know, funny. And oh, what's this documentary you're making? Great. When I got there, I got there before anyone else. There was like, it was like a thing with like a panel. There's like three people on one side, three on the other, and a, and a host kind of thing. Is that you know? And they all talk about, they all talk about the affair of the day, the affairs of the day. Affairs is the operative word in this particular case. But you know, I got there and I saw the the host's questions, what they were going to ask me, because he had it on a piece of paper written out. And at the bottom of it, he had written, "If the English guy is a dickhead, uh, push him a lot about the Falklands." Oh, so God, I was, yeah. And I had, that was the point where it's like, there are like bright lights and an audience already gathering behind the bright lights. And I'm just looking at this paper, like, Oh my God, this might not be as what I think. And it was still the first six months of my time in Argentina. So I was still getting to grips with the accents. The people came on and they just roasted me for a long time in really thick, horrible accents with a lot of slang. And I was just sat there looking. You can find this on YouTube somewhere as well. Uh, I'm just sitting there like a complete plonker, just like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and they're going like, <laughs> so, so tell me this, like, oh, you think English people don't cheat? And I was like, no, no, I'm not saying that. I'm just, I'm just making a video here about cheating in Argentina. Don't hate me. And they're like, oh, well, what about uh, David Beckham? Didn't he cheat? And I was like, I don't know. I don't, I really, maybe he did. Um, and they said, well, why don't, do you cheat? Like, don't you, don't you like having sex or anything? And that was a key moment because my instinct is to, I don't, I don't want to say, yes, I like having sex because that's a really boring thing to say. So my instinct is to make a joke and be like, I don't know. I never had it. Right. And I said that and they went, oh, and they moved on and I didn't have a chance to explain. I was joking. So unbeknownst to me, the producers put up a, a lower third column under my name saying like Andrew Gold, the ultimate English virgin. Um, <laughs> We found so, the, the title of your new uh, autobiographical film. Should be called that. Oh, man. And what basically even more uh, channels were asking me to come on the show and talk about being a virgin, all this stuff after that. <laughs> I was like, no, no. And people in the street recognized me as the virgin. Twitter, there was all this Twitter stuff, <laughs> Spanish people going, I can't believe he's a virgin. He looks about 26, doesn't he, or something? What's wrong? And I was, it was just awful. Uh, and even years later, my girlfriend told me only like a year ago, she was talking to her boss back in Argentina and he, they spoke a little bit about me and he said, ah, the Virgin. Yeah. From like four <laughs> years ago. So <laughs> that's great. The, uh, yeah. the English Virgin. 
It's kind of like the English patient, but now, you know, now it's the English version. But well, I definitely got the, the burns. Yeah. If I, I always tell people, and, and you have, there's the only way to learn this, it seems, is the hard way. When I travel with people that don't travel as much and you're in a country yeah. where you're being, you're in a second language, sarcasm does not translate. Much like an e- like a text <laughs> or an email that you have to yeah. send off, you know, a follow-up text because it was taken the wrong way. Yeah. Trying to be sarcastic at another. I always tell people just like, you know, we're in their country. They're, tr- they're speaking English to us. It's their second language. Don't make jokes. Don't. Uh, you know, just say what you mean exactly how you mean yeah. it because they're translating it. And if you joked, it's like, hey, I, know, I never had it. You, you can get away with that in um, in an English speaking country. Yeah. Here, people would have laughed. Also, you know, but it's, it's the like, other, yeah, exactly. exactly. I think it's because also they don't expect, because we were speaking Spanish, and they don't expect a foreigner to make jokes in their language. Yeah. No, it's a tough, it's a fine line that mm. you have to do, but all it takes is that. <laughs> to be one mistake and you're the uh, English virgin for the rest of your life. So whatever became of the cheating movie? Because I saw a clip on, hmm. on your reel about, you know, you went to an orgy or something. Yeah. <laughs> so we made it, we made it and they liked it enough to, to, to commission another one, which was about UFOs. So we went to a place called Capilla del Monte or Capilla. It would be in Mexico, but they got the sh in Argentina, Capilla. Um, to film people who believe in UFOs. It was just like a ridiculous thing, you know, five minutes. But again, it was like amazing for me. They said they gave us all this money. We got a proper crew, like a real, like, you know, and we, we got this beautiful bus where they've got beds on it down to, you know, it's an eight hour trip overnight from uh, Buenos Aires and filmed people and went searching for aliens, obviously knowing I wasn't going to, wasn't going to find anything, but it was a lot of fun. Those, those videos were part of a series that fusion were making for whatever reason, uh, a year later or so, that series didn't seem to happen. And then the the last I heard was they sold it to HBO. And then I never heard anything more. How frustrating is that to, to work so hard on something and then it just disappears into the, into the ether. And now with the internet, of course, it's just like every streaming service. I mean, it just, it just plows through content, you know, it's it's just there. It's Oh, great. Yeah. I watched that. I saw a little bit of it and then, then it's gone and you didn't make anything. And it's, People could just download it for free or see it, and it's it's hard. Yeah, no, it is. It was it was in a way actually. Now I think about it, it was the opposite of the Exorcist film because the Exorcist film got a lot of um, a lot of eyes on it. You know, it was BBC. I know it's got like nearly six hundred thousand on YouTube, and then on the BBC's platform. I don't get those statistics, but I imagine it's at least that. It's an amazing thing when you've made something and you've fallen in love with it and you've made it for so long and worked on it to think about. I mean, you can't really imagine that many people sitting down and watching it that was a really amazing feeling but we didn't get paid and we didn't get anything from that whereas the ufo and the infidelity ones we got paid well uh you know nothing mad but nothing crazy you know it wasn't crazy money but it was just like a few thousand i got a few thousand dollars out of it which at 25 was like the best thing ever that's like months (laughs) of wages so yeah it but but as i say yeah there was no it didn't get shown as far as i know anywhere i who do you even email i emailed like hbo.com you know yeah, I emailed yeah like the secretary of hbo who's and i was like hey have you shown my film and she's like you know i don't i don't know who you are go away yeah so. well i mean as someone who has amazon prime mm. um they are documentaries on there i'm a big rock music fan so like i've watched a million rock documentaries mm. but some of them uh, are amazingly cheap 
and thrown together and really bad. And so it's like, I don't know what they're turning away because some of this stuff no. is just, they just need content and they're just, I don't, are, yeah, I don't know what, I, I don't know how that works though, because I've, so I made this film about uh, an abortion, right? And I think it was a better, about an abortion. It was about abortion. And I thought it was interesting because we, we hung around with like, it was very similar to the exorcist film, but it was with a woman uh, who was like, um, she reminded me a lot. Do you know the Westboro Baptist church? Yeah. She was a bit like the matriarch, Shirley. So she was very anti-abortion and she used to turn up when people were getting abortions and like scream at them. And she had these little babies, like plastic babies. And she was known there as the crazy baby lady. That was like her nickname right. and very you know, pro-life and that. And we made this documentary where I hung out with her for like, uh, again, like with the exorcist uh, for you know five, six weeks, hanging out with her on the school run to get her kids and all this stuff. And I thought it was a better film than the exorcist one. Couldn't get anybody, still can't. We got it with a sales agent, can't get anyone to look at it. And you're right, you look on TV and you're like, I can't believe the dredge that they've got on here. <laughs> and there must be some sort of deal where it's like these big deals are made over your head where it's like Sony and someone and they've somehow got like 50 films and they're like, here's some money, give us those 50 films. And when we're going like, I'm just some guy, can you take my film? They're like, mm, we don't want to do the paperwork for that one film. Yeah, I've seen stuff that's like, I swear to God, they must have shot it on a phone. <laughs> you know, just so bad. And, it's mad. Yeah. But uh, I wanted to get off. Um, uh, Argentina. Well, no, not Argentina. You were there a long time. But let's yeah. go with the tourist stuff in terms of mm. like, everybody knows going to Buenos Aires. And I went to mm. Guazu Falls and, and all mm -hmm. that. I saw the photo. Oh, yeah. You got a photo somewhere. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, but other than those hotspots, can you recommend anything that tourists should see if they go down there and that's maybe off the beaten path a little bit that only an insider would know? Because hmm. I'm not a great traveler. Well, did you make it down to Patagonia at all or any of that? Yeah. Well, we got down, so we went... Because um, <clears throat> that was in Ushuaia. Oh, that's south, man. That's yeah. Like I, Antarctica. I, I caught an Antarctica cruise there. That I What was that on. like? It was amazing. Wow. It was amazing. But I didn't get to see. I only had to, I had to fly into Ushuaia and we got on the ship the next day. So I didn't really get to see much. But I want to go back and explore Patagonia more yeah. for sure. It looked yeah, amazing. It's, but, you know, it's really, literally the end of the world. I mean, they said it's the last, you know, it's the end of the road. <laughs> I mean, it's as far south as you can go almost on the yeah. planet. You know, certainly, you know, but it was it was pretty incredible. But yeah. I would love to get back it, down there. Yeah. I mean, nature-wise, I mean, Argentina is is beautiful. Yeah, oh, it's, it's it's so big. I mean, like it's a lot. It reminds me of the states in that way. And some people would say France, so it's not quite as big. But just you've got like everything there. The French used to always say, like, why would why would you go in US? We have uh, we have everything everything here. <laughs> so um, I went to you know Cordoba is just stunning, and you can um, go and see Che Guevara's house. I think just in the outskirts of there. It's just just the outskirts of of Cordoba, just the most beautiful places. And you could people could go and visit off the beaten. It's off the beaten path, but it's also a touristic hotspot. But it's not a well known one, which is Capiche del Monte, which is that place where you know everybody believes in aliens. There, that's a place to go. <laughs> okay, um, but, but otherwise, yeah, I went to Mendoza, uh, which is the wine the, the wine place. You know, and that, that was just. Yeah, beautiful as well. And they had oh, some really great, um, uh, what did they call spas, some great spas where you're like outside around mountains and stuff, and you've got this hot thermal water and stuff going on. So that was just, yeah, beautiful. But then when you're in Buenos Aires, they're just, there are towns around it um, in the state of Buenos Aires, you know, but they're just, yeah, they, once you've seen one, you've sort of seen 
all of them. They're sort of these small, and it's it's a lot of that across South America. These sort of small towns of a central plaza with an equestrian with a big statue. church. Yeah, it's <laughs> a big church. <laughs> yeah. Colonial bells. There might be a cool festival or something going on. There's what the place called San Pedro was nice, and there's Tigre. Of course, is much nearer Buenos Aires. Tigre is great. A lot of people go there. That's like the Venice of South America because they've got like all the the canals and rivers and stuff. That's that's really cool, and it's it's only half an hour on the train from the center of Buenos Aires. So Did you great. get? Well, one thing I remember, you know, I love food and stuff like that. But I mean, I knew the. Uh, all you can remember about eating in Buenos Aires was uh, every restaurant steak. seemed to have the same menu. Yes. It's yeah. more steak than I've ever seen in my life. It was like steak, empanadas, and pizza. <laughs> and after a while, even after a week of it, and I love all those things, but I needed something else. Yeah. And that kind of, oh no, and I say, learn, don't, uh, they'll put the basket of bread in front of you. Don't touch the bread. Because if you touch it, they make you pay for it. That's what uh, somebody yeah. told me. That's what I learned. But the wine well, was amazing yeah. and so cheap. Yeah. Oh, uh, it was yes. so good. That oh. was really great. The wine, like the beer in Germany is yeah. cheap. But, I remember uh, sitting yeah, at a nice uh, Italian restaurant there and I was looking on the wine list and uh, the wine, oh, I'll try this one. It's like $9 and okay. Yeah. And I had, I didn't realize it was the whole bottle. I thought, oh. you know, here a glass of wine <laughs> yeah. is like $14. And I went, oh, nine seems reasonable. And then, nope. And then it was like, well, it looks like I'm drinking a bottle of wine this evening by myself, which I right. did. The economy. <laughs> Do you remember much that happened after? <laughs> it was fun. I remembered. Yeah. And then, um, oh, and the, and the gelato was really good. Anything Italian was, uh, that, they had yeah. a good uh, good lock on. But also, beginning yeah. back to it, big uh uh, Jewish community down there. I didn't realize. Well, this is it. I mean, I, yeah, I was going to say before when it cut out, I mean, I met my girlfriend. She is actually Jewish. And I had done all I could before to avoid meeting any Jewish women because I didn't <laughs> want to please my father. Uh, it was the <laughs> last thing I wanted. Yeah, he, would, you know, he wouldn't have even minded. He never minded ex-girlfriends not being Jewish. But he would always ask, like, is she uh, Jewish? And it was like the first, it wasn't like, <laughs> is she nice? Is she like yeah. attractive? Is she, this, is she Jewish? So I purposely avoided it. And then I was dating this girl and I came to realize that her surname was Finkelstein. Finkelstein. Oh God. Wow. Okay. People have heard before bit I'm Jewish, then it might sound like I'm an anti-Semite who's going like, Oh, I really wanted to avoid a Jewish girl. But, but yeah, so she just happened to be Jewish and there was a big, yeah, big community there. I guess it's, you know, with London, uh, Paris, New York, Los Angeles, Moscow. I think those, those are the big ones. Yeah. I mean, was that, something from after the war or was that before the war that was the big immigration I th- there i think it was after uh there were obviously there was some before but i get the I, from what i've heard it was like during and after and it was very much uh the president at the time in argentina was sort of saying come one come all so they they took a lot of jews and they took a lot of nazis and escaped nazis which is obviously the stereotype, but it's true. I mean, a lot of them went out there uh, and, you know, Patagonia, and you've got these little German towns now and stuff, and they're beautiful. Oh, Carrie Lowe, that's, a, that's an off-the-beaten path. It's sort of four or five hours from Buenos Aires, and it's, it's got a very sort of German, uh, it's a town with a very German sort of centre, and it's charming and quaint, um, and there's the beach. Uh, it's not it's not beautiful, the sea there, because it's, it's the, ri- the River Plata, the um but it's it's definitely where if you want to escape the city in Buenos Aires, go to Curry Low. Um, but yeah, uh, yeah, loads of Germans and stuff. So <laughs> it's it's yeah, 
it's a mix. <laughs> <laughs> so by the time your time there was done, mm. were you, were you really ready to to leave? Yeah. Were you you were done? You wanted to get back to I, Europe? I was done with it. I was so done with it. And I think this happens a lot when you're an expat. You you move and you learn the language or whatever, but and you want to meet mostly locals and you put a lot of effort into that in the first year and then the second year and then the third year a bit oh there's an i met this english guy at football and maybe i'll just hang out with him today and then by the end you've just got a group of english and american friends and it, there are people who don't do that and there'll be people listening who are like hey i don't do that and that's you know great i just think for me eventually you, you is that thing i was talking about with Medellin before i think it gets to a point when you remember you're actually this is you're living your life this isn't just like a, a travel journey after a few years. Now you're living here and you're always going to have more in common with people who are, you know, speakers of your language, people from your own town or your country. So, and what, what would happen over the years is that you meet all these friends and then a few of them start to leave one by one. And then you've got a whole sort of new group and you're like, this isn't, this isn't really working for me. Always having to replace my friends. It's, it's not very stable. You have no stability in that kind of life. And it'd been six years. My girlfriend finally finished her law degree. And the whole time I was saying, like, can we move? And, you know, I think if we were going to set up a family and everything, it would be in Europe. And it's not really found her now because now she's the one that has to be quite far from her family. And unfortunately, geographically, there is just nowhere between Buenos Aires and London. And even if there were, that's no good because then you're raising a child and you've got neither the help of neither family. She is a, a, a lawyer. She is... Uh, She's looking at how to do like a two-year course or whatever. It's really frustrating because she is a qualified lawyer in Argentina, but she would have to qualify again in England, but only it would only be one or two years. So that's what we're looking into now. And it would be, we might move back in six months uh, to London or in a year. We're, we're just sort of looking at what to do at the moment. Were you Have you been in Berlin through this whole pandemic and mm. everything else? Mm. And what's the vibe there? How is it now? Yeah, it's pretty shitty. It's pretty, everything's closed, you know? Uh, my girlfriend escaped it. She's gone, like I said, she's gone back to Argentina for three weeks um, to be with her family. She hasn't seen them. They had to cancel last year coming to see her and it was her first year of moving away from them. So it made all of that so much harder. There's also that thing, I guess, and I'm talking more just about everyone that we all have, but we have quite a small apartment. It's just, you know, the bedroom and then this room I'm in now, right? And it means that we are just on top of each other and we get on very well. But it's there's no where's the space to like be excited to see one another, and sometimes she worked, she actually was working in a hotel, so she, and the hotel stayed semi open, so she would still go and then and come back, um, and it's like oh we're seeing each other having not seen each other for a few hours, how amazing, and then it's like okay we've got days of just and it, and and it's not bad of course it's lovely spending a lot of time with your partner, but then usually it would be like yeah let's go to the cinema tonight together, let's go to that nice restaurant, let's go here and there can't do anything so you just sit and i feel really sorry for people with children in the house because that's a hundred times worse so i shouldn't complain but yeah germany is um yeah lockdown everyone's wearing the masks all the time i'm i'm not as big of a traveler as you so you know i travel in a, in a strange way where i think a lot of friends of mine it's one of those things where they would be like oh i can't believe you're traveling all the time and they don't know what i actually do which is mostly sitting at home like you know now in argentina buenos aires i had fifa on my playstation uh, <laughs> so it was just and, and i because it is it, it was so cheap there i wasn't earning much money i was copywriting but it's so cheap out there 
sometimes it goes up and down like crazy that I was able to afford a place that had like a really nice pool. It was almost like a clubhouse kind of place. So it was just like all these Americans and Brits and Europeans just hanging out at the pool. Then I'd go up and play on the PlayStation for a few hours. And then I did some writing for a couple hours, which earned me enough to live. So it was really like a six year holiday in some respects while also trying to push the BBC about my documentary and stuff like that. And it's the same here where, you know, where I'm sitting now, this is where I do my podcast, right? I, I do it. It's 24 seven, this podcast. It never ends. It's so much work, but I'm just sitting here. What I mean is the outside world being closed doesn't affect me that much. I'm not, I'm not doing that much. Right. But uh, is, um, how are the, uh, like the death rates and the infection rates doing in Germany as compared to say France or mm. the UK? The UK I heard, I I heard was the worst yeah. in, in Europe, right? Yeah. I, I never know when to trust these kinds of statistics because you're dealing with like huge numbers of, of stats from different countries who are probably all dealing with them in slightly different ways. Even if they're doing it the right way, the right way is probably slightly different. And that will set you off by a few million P cases of hundreds of thousands of cases. So basically, and the reason I say this is because I have this chat with my mom and she's in the UK and she watches the news and the news is always like doom and gloom because that's how it sells. I mean, I was part of that, you know, that's the whole point. It's supposed to always exaggerate. And she goes, no, 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 they're exaggerating the opposite to make people feel better. Actually, no. things are much worse. And I was like, who told you that? And she's like, the news. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I don't know. I, I think the UK tends to be even more than other countries, very downbeat and very self-critical and very everything's wrong and everything's bad. And it probably is. It probably it probably actually is this time. It does sound like stuff is is bad, but it's bad everywhere. It's just, it's bad here. It's bad where you are. It's bad in the UK. It's just bad. So have you gotten, I was asked this at the end of everything. What is all this travel and and living in different places and different continents and everything else, what has it taught you about people? What has it taught about yourself and yeah. maybe your own country, or you know, the way you grew up as compared to everywhere else? I think uh, a couple of things. So firstly, I think it, it taught me that, um, uh, it taught me, What's the main thing? The main takeaway, I think, is from like an anthropology sort of standpoint, because I love making these documentaries and stuff. And I think it's really important as a journalist, as what you were saying about being a lawyer, for example, there are a lot of careers, I suppose, where it's really important to see both sides of things. Um, so both the documentary experience I've had and meeting different people has really, really, I think, opened my mind up to the fact that like nobody really knows what they're doing. It's really hard to know what the right thing to do is. And you need to sort of I've become a lot more, and maybe that's something that happens to a lot of old people as you get older as well, but I've become much more accepting of people who've got completely different views and ways of living to my own. Um, having learned to speak different languages, it opened up a whole new world of people. There were things that happened, for example, in England at the moment, there was a big thing because um, there was a footballer from Uruguay who used a word that was deemed to be um, racist. Yeah. Cavani. It was, yes. From Manchester United. Yes, exactly. Exactly. You know your stuff. I know. And I think maybe when I was 20, I would have been like, well, he should know better. And now I'm thinking, well, I know what they're like in Uruguay, in Argentina. And I know that they do that in an affectionate way. And I could, you could argue that on the other side of the coin, you could say, actually, it's quite horrible of us to expect another culture to have exactly the same moral guidelines as ours. 
So I think that's what sometimes traveling, if you really want to meet the people and understand them and stuff, that you can open your mind to the fact, like I say, with this abortion lady, I mean, I'm, I'm fervently pro-choice, um, but but I, I really got on with this woman. She hates me now. She won't speak to me. But the woman, the crazy baby lady, was so nice to me. She took me in. Uh, she gave us all food and stuff. She has these six kids. So like her house is like kids running around and she was so lovely uh, and crazy. And the thoughts and the, the things she has, the ideology she has uh, are really, really dangerous for a lot of people. But she doesn't go to bed at night thinking like, ha ha ha, I'm going to ruin some lives tomorrow. She she goes to bed thinking I'm doing what is right in the name of, you know, whoever's upstairs, the Lord, Lord or whatever she thinks. And I just think, yeah, I think you have to, as you get older, start to go like, okay, people have different views. And as long as they're not enforcing them too much on you, that's where we've had problems historically, you know, whether it's Stalin on the left or Hitler on the right, that's when it, when, you know, and it, and it's great, actually. I love that some people have abhorrent views because it means that I can feel good about my own views compared to them. I can go, I can be really self-righteous and just go like, hmm that's a racist person and I'm a good person. I wouldn't want everyone to be like, have the same moral ideas as me. What a boring world that would be. So what is the plan now uh, for the short term, at least you're going to stay in Berlin for a little while. We didn't even get to talk about Berlin, which is a, oh, yeah. an amazing up and coming <laughs> city. It's like one of the hottest cities now in uh, Europe. Mm. Right. I mean, it's, yeah, it's huge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's cool. It's really cool. Again, it's not really me because Berlin is all about like the nightclubs and like, you know, Bergheim is the main nightclub. Yeah. yeah. It's just, uh, I don't want to, this is when people ask me, it's just, where do you want to go as soon as uh, you can fly somewhere? I'm just going, well, I could go to places, some places now. And, and you know, as someone who loves cities, yeah. I don't want to go to Rome or Paris or these places where if I have to, and no restaurants are open. Or if I have to yeah. sit in a cafe and be served by a guy in a hazmat suit with everybody, you know, you know, with with masks What's and things, it's like this yeah. is that is not the Italy that I know or love. Yeah. You know, I've been there yeah. enough and going, I'm not getting the full. You know, I don't want to even go to New York, and I can't yeah. go to a, a restaurant or a bar or yeah, yeah. or to the theater or any. So, is it really going to New York? I mean, I just. So uh, until things have yeah. kind of back to what they were, I mean, it would be tough being in Germany when you can't go to a, a beer hall or something, you know, you know what I mean? It was, yeah, exactly. It's such a shame. And, you know, we had some nice time sort of before Christmas, we were walking, my girlfriend and I, to, we went on these, because that's all you do. It's what everyone does. You go on a walk. You walk. And they were doing like the mulled wine on the streets. Oh, yeah, for know, Christmas. Stalls. Yeah, so for a few weeks, it was like at least you know, and we're not big drinkers at all, but we'll have a drink sometimes. And it was like, okay, we're going out to do an event. And the event is we're going to get some mulled wine from a stall and we'll walk with it in a cup and we'll walk by the river. And that will be an event now. And after about a week of it, the government stopped the mulled wine being sold. So that was that. Ugh, yeah. Uh, are things starting to open up a little bit or are they still completely mm. locked no. down? Yeah, it's completely locked down right now. But Ah, it's tough. That's yeah, the thing. It's, it's like tough, we, yeah. it could be anywhere. You could be back in, yeah. for the amount of time you've left the house, you could be back in Buenos Aires. You could be in London. Yep. <laughs> but here's what's so great about Berlin, though, with that in mind. And this is one of the reasons that it was a good place to come to, I think, for us, because I work freelance, so I earn money from, like, it doesn't matter where I happen to be living. And Berlin is pretty much the cheapest city. It's definitely the cheapest, well, one of the cheapest capital cities in Europe. Really? It's the cheapest city, yeah. In Germany? In Germany it's, wow. Yeah. 
it's the capital, but it's it's like I was shocked when we we traveled uh, west. We went to the Black Forest. It's like a like a fifteen hour drive or something. Stopped at a few places on the way. Like it was a trip we did last year. So we went to and this was actually during the Corona thing, but it was summer. So it was maybe like six months ago. Um, it was summer and stuff was like half open. You know, there was there, sorry, there was something to do. Um, and I was just amazed, like even these small towns that I'd never heard of that were not particularly touristic or anything like that, they were just much more expensive than Berlin was. And that's because Berlin is part of um, the sort of Brandenburg area in the east, which is right by Poland and was part of the East German stuff. So it's still a bit, and it's not like how you imagine Germany. If you haven't been to Berlin, if someone hasn't been to Berlin, it's not like this like super fast, uh, modern, efficient people. It's It's the opposite. This is this was almost a step back from South America so much as it, the, the chaos and everything in Berlin, which, which has a charm as well, but it's not, it's not like a, a Frankfurt kind of place or a Hamburg or one of those places. Well, I always found it. I found Berlin to be like, kind of like, it's like LA in a way that, that there's no real center, like a downtown yeah. where everybody yes. meets. It's like different neighborhoods all spread out all over the place. Yeah. And it's like, well, that's a yeah. cool place, but we have to go through these three neighborhoods to get to that one. That's cool. And then we got to go, but it's uh, yeah. it's pretty kind of sprawling. But I thought it was yeah. it's, it's fascinating. Yeah, yeah, not as many highways and stuff as LA though. Yeah, no, no. I, 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 I'm only meant in the footprint, not in the actual. Yeah, yeah, no, I totally, yeah, I totally agree. <laughs> it is that which I find hard to sort of navigate in my mind because I'm so used to any city I've lived in has been like there's the city centre, that's you know Leicester Square, Trafalgar Square, whatever in 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 London. And these are the suburbs, and that's where I live. And this wouldn't, is, yeah. Wouldn't it have been your first instinct, though, seeing how both of you spoke Spanish, to go to, say, Spain, if you were going to go back to mm. Europe? Well, so the the thing that before she had her Polish passport, um, we had the option for, for Argentina had relationships, like it's called the working holiday visa, with, um, it was France, Ireland, Denmark, and Germany. They oh. also have it with uh, New Zealand and Australia and a few other places around the world where they have these kinds of like uh, partnerships. So we looked at that and I thought, you know, France, I already lived there. I already spoke the language and I thought I want a new challenge. And German was so different. When you've learned, you know, French, Spanish was the next step. It was just adding bits to the end of the words. And then Portuguese, it's the same thing. Um, German well, you- was like... Yeah, yeah, yeah cool. and no, no, no. Knowing Spanish, I mean, I'm sure Italy is. They say is a very close. It's an easy jump for you, probably. Yeah, yeah, Italian. Yeah, it would have been, it would have been, but in no challenge. So we got here and we started really working on it and like reading Harry Potter in German and stuff. <laughs> and there's something about it that I guess because when I was a kid, <coughs> sorry, sorry, if I when I was a kid, even I couldn't speak any French or Spanish as a kid, but we went on holiday to Spain all the time. Uh, that was where you go on holiday, you go to Spain and France. We were doing that since I was nine or 10 at school. So you just, you know what the words look like. You have an idea, you've heard it before. German, most German people I ever met, they spoke English to me. You know, you've heard a few words, of course, but like, I don't know anything about the language. And it it blew my mind how complicated and horrible and crazy it actually is. They've got 16 different ways of saying the. <laughs> So, and you're always conscious of the grammar. You're like, but should this word go at the end of the sentence? And you're putting like the second verb to the end of the sentence. But sometimes the first verb also has to go to the end. So you'll say all the things in the sentence and then the verb, which is mm. mad. How have you been doing? Have you been getting around okay? You, what, with the language? Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, I did. It took it took a uh, you know six months or so. I was going before Corona and everything. I used to go to this pub that had um, like daily meetups with other foreigners like me, you know, who would go there. And we all spoke German. That was the thing. We would all speak German to each other. And we were all a bit rubbish, you know. We weren't great. But that was if if you speak to a German, it's very hard because they're going to speak very quickly in their native language. So that was that really helped us. And I got to a point where I can pretty much say what I want. Fine, I, I have to really listen hard to get what they're saying. I can read pretty fluently, like Harry Potter. I've done like you know five or six of the Harry Potter books now in German, and that's a really great feeling actually. And it's a nicer feeling for me than it would have been learning Italian, which would look a bit like the languages I knew growing up. It's amazing for me to look at the Harry Potter pages, which when I first looked at them was just like you know for anybody if you look at German and you've never tried to learn it before, it looks like you know gobbledygook. And yeah. now I know what every word means, and it's it's a nice feeling. Oh, if our grandfathers could see us speaking German, <laughs> what would they? What would they think? They my grandmother spoke. My grandmother spoke Yiddish, yeah, which yeah, was yeah. Uh, similar. Is dying really out. Similar to well, German. it's this crazy hybrid of German and Russian and Polish mm. and everything. Yeah, but, uh, yeah. It's amazing. I can I can now understand some Yiddish. Um, and there was that program on Netflix, Unorthodox. Do you see that? Yeah, I didn't see it, but I heard of it. Yeah. Mm. They they have entire scenes in Yiddish, and I I could understand the scenes, and that was that was mad to me. I, I you know because as well, my my grandparents they would occasionally say a couple of words of Yiddish or whatever, and now I would be able to speak it probably better than they could because it's so similar. I think it's like ninety percent German, and then as you say, like a bit of Russian, a bit of Hebrew, and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah it was fascinating. But so, is there a, a a language program that you use or can recommend or something? Because I'm trying to brush up on my Spanish again. Is there an app or something yeah. you use a lot? I wish they I wish they would pay me. I, I sent an email to a few of these companies saying like I'll advertise your company and say that I learned it with your thing. What what I think is I think with learning a language, uh, it's like it's a real commitment and it's. But 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 what's great about it is it's like it's not one of those things like it's a commitment like I'm going to become a professional footballer like it's a big commitment but it's not going to happen anyway or you might if you're really good this is like a commitment where if you do it if you do all of these things you will be fluent obviously people develop at different times but if you do all the different things that are part of the commitment you will be fluent it might take six months it might take a year or two years and I always say to people like you've got to mix it up you've got to do all the different things it's not good enough to just I think a lot of people are fooled by this like Duolingo stuff right which is not bad there's nothing wrong with Duolingo it's good but it's a supplement it's like do that with lots of other things. You you cannot learn, as far as I'm concerned, they might disagree with me. And if they were to pay me some money or something, I would happily tell everyone to use Duolingo. And it is good. Um, but yeah, so what I would do is like wake up and like do, you don't have to do it like a lot. It's like 10 minutes of Duolingo, right? Each day, make sure you've just done, you've done it. Your brain's looked at it. Then I used Pimsler, which was an audio thing. And the thing is, I was younger and I had no money. I was, I think I was finding ways to get it free somewhere, you know. But Pimsler, and Pimsler's really interesting because it's so it's quite boring actually. <laughs> but <laughs> 20 minutes of Pimsler, and it's like, now imagine you're in a supermarket, you know. <laughs> right. Tell the tell the bar, tell the manager that you want a bagel. I would like some beef. <laughs> now you're talking to you're in a big office meeting. Um, and it's like that kind of thing. I used that. That was like 20 minutes or whatever. And then you got, there was a one, there was one called Michelle Thomas, who is a very famous language teacher who died 10, 15 years ago. And he, I think is a Jewish Polish guy was, and he escaped a concentration camp 
and he had an amazing, fascinating life. And he taught Woody Allen, among many other uh, celebrities, languages. And he was said to have taught Woody Allen French in one weekend. Um, but very famous teacher, and he has a, a specific method. And I used to use their stuff as well. And what it was was Michelle, who has quite a personality, and he was quite old by then, maybe in his 80s, I don't know. And he was talking to whether it's French, Spanish, German, it's different people he gets, because he can speak all the languages. Um, he gets a guy and a girl usually, and usually one of them is very good and the other one's not good. So he'll, you're listening to them learning. So <clears throat> you, you, know, you don't feel so bad because maybe the guy is worse than you. Because he says, how do you say I can? And you're like, uh, puedo. And you get it before the guy does. But then the woman might get it really quickly and you're like, ah, oh, I got to get... Anyway, that... If I did, I would do Michelle Thomas 20 minutes, Pimsler 20 minutes, uh, Duolingo, and then every night read on my Kindle, which you can then, you can like touch the, the words and you can see the dictionary. And there are, um, there are books you can get that are like, I had them for, for German, for example, called Cafe in Berlin, uh, a guy called Andre Klein who writes them. And they're like these really short books. They're basically kids' books, you know, and they're like, Andre is, oh, like, you know, Robert is going to the cafe then it was very, very simple. But the way that they're written, he has like 10 of them. And each book is slightly more complicated than the previous one. And when I finished them, I read like nine of them. So that was every night reading these books. Uh, I was able to start the first book of Harry Potter, which happens to work the same way because Harry Potter, each book gets a little bit more complicated than adults. And by the time she's on the seventh book, it's it's like a young adult or even an adult book. But the first books are very much children's books. So it's just this very gradual moving up uh, with the books, which I think people usually, they don't bother with. I think people learning languages, they're like, okay, I'll just do Duolingo every day. And like, you'll get some of it, but it's not the same as, as the books. And then once you get to a certain standard, there's an app that I was using called Tandem. And you meet people who want to learn your language. And what I would do is I would say like, okay, we'll, we'll talk on the phone. We'll do half an hour in English and half an hour in German. Um, and I made some quite nice friends that way. So, and that improved me no end that I didn't have to go to that pub anymore to that meetup. You know, I was just sitting at home and I had at one point, it was like nearly every day I was speaking to another German from somewhere um, and doing my half an hour and then being like, oh God, I've got to speak in English now for the, for them so they can learn. But, <laughs> you know, all those things combined and then look, the best thing by a mile, my, my German is never as good, anywhere near as good as my Spanish and my French. And in French, I had a girlfriend who was French when I was living there for three years. She didn't speak a word of English. And Spanish, of course, my girlfriend is Argentine. We speak in English, but for years, whenever I was with her family, Spanish. And I know it's a cliche, but nothing is better than having a girlfriend or boyfriend or whatever from that place because you just become part of it. No, nothing compares to that. No, okay. That's still, you know, quite a commitment. <laughs> it's, a lot of, it's a lot of stuff. But like, there's nobody who does all those things. Oh, you mean having a relationship? I thought you meant the whole <laughs> yeah. thing. But having a relationship. Oh, well, all of it. Yeah. But that's, yeah. You <laughs> yeah, know, yeah, you know but, marry someone from that language. It's like, <laughs> there's got to be, can I take a class instead? <laughs> but yeah, there, there is nobody who does all those things and doesn't become fluent within a year or two. If you do those things, as long as it's not a really complicated, I'm not talking about Chinese or Japanese or something, you know, if it's a European language, the first thing that Michelle Thomas points out in his, his lessons are that there are like tens of thousands of words, which are basically the same in English and Spanish. And you just have to learn the way that they change them. Yeah. And yeah. then you're not, you've already got that dictionary that you've already got it. So anybody who does it could do it. The problem is, I mean, I've got a friend who just went to Mexico for a few months and I was pushing him so hard. Like, you've got to do it 
you do these things. I sent him the whole list and he was loving it. He was like, yeah, yeah, I'll do it. I was like, you've got to do it. Even if it's just 10 minutes a day, that's better than doing, that's better than doing an hour and then waiting a week and doing an hour. If you do 10 minutes every day, cause it just, it's a muscle, the brain. Yeah. I do hear, I do hear it's a daily thing. You have to do it every yeah. single day. You can't mm-hmm. slack off on it. That's the thing. And yeah, my friend, I, I get the impression. He hasn't said, he doesn't want to admit it, but I think he's sort of slowed down and taken a few days off. And that's when it gets difficult because then when you're next doing it, you're not improving from last time. You're getting back to the level you were at last time and you're not feeling the progress as much, which happens as well. You can have you have a rush the first few weeks because every, every time you learn a new word, you basically double your vocabulary of new words. You know, I've learned two words. No, I, I learned four today. I've doubled my vocabulary. <laughs> the more you learn, you get to a point where you've got a great vocabulary. You can read stuff. You can't, you're still not as good as you want to be and people are talking at you you can't quite understand and you're not feeling the progress because you already speak 10,000 words or whatever it might be, a thousand words. So a new couple of words, it doesn't. you're not feeling the progress anymore and that's when motivation starts to really dip. All right. You motivated me much, you know, much more. Yeah. So I'm going to be every I, day. Yeah, I got to get my Spanish back up. Yeah. I'll work yeah. on it. I'll work on it. Okay, give, us, uh, give everybody your... Uh, your websites and social media mm. where they can find you. Yeah. Twitter and Instagram on Andrew gold underscore. Okay. Um, and then my podcast is called on the edge with Andrew gold. You can find that on YouTube or Spotify or Apple or any of those places. Most people listen to it on, uh, yeah, Spotify. So I talk to just sort of strange, the types of people that I would usually make documentaries about sort of not an exorcist, but I had a psychopath, um, a woman who is a psychopath. She's a Mormon, psychopath she was telling me what it's like to not have any empathy um and just people who do really crazy weird things we had an australian called the coffin confession uh, coffin confessor the coffin confessor who who's paid ten thousand dollars uh to go to funerals he's paid by the deceased before they die to go to funerals and and re- reveal their secrets like oh you know that that he had been gay his whole life and the lover is in the audience or whatever that kind of thing so just oh, the man. strangest <laughs> that's that sounds cool there's a movie in that yeah well i've been trying to write a series i spoke to him about it it's just you never get time you know yeah i know i know <laughs> but uh, yeah anyway thanks for doing this man i really appreciate it i know this went on longer than i thought and we had a little uh computer glitch but uh well i didn't shut up as well i just can't you just I kept talking <laughs> I can't, I can't, I don't mean just in that glitch mean, I, oh, I, I mean okay. the whole time through, I just can't, uh, I've noticed because I'm going on more and more podcasts to get, you know, obviously get some PR for my podcast. And like, once I start, I just like, man, it's just going on. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, maybe partly because I haven't spoken to anyone for about three days. I'm just sitting here waiting for my girlfriend to get back. Yeah. <laughs> so I got you at the right time. Yeah. Well, yeah, I hope it was uh, useful stuff, man. I hope the, your listeners will be interested. No, thank you so much again for doing it. And uh, Auf Wiedersehen. How's that? Wiedersehen. Did I do? Yeah. Okay, That's good. Pretty good. Give me a good uh, German send-off. Uh, yeah, Auf Wiedersehen. It's, it's, the thing with the German words is some of them are not as complicated as they seem uh, once you break them down. So Auf means like on, uh, or it, it can mean off because it's a ridiculous language. Uh, Wieder. <laughs> means uh again and sehen means to see so it's on the again seeing on the again seeing on the again seeing on the again seeing andrew gold everyone <laughs> <laughs>